and welcome to episode 117 of Zapped to the Past. I am Adrian Mills and I'm joined as always by Mr. Graham Raddings. If you haven't listened before, this is a podcast where we discuss games that were released for the Commodore 64. Last week, we looked at our first batch of games from issue 47 of Zap 64, which we are in no way affiliated with, and were juddered by Jordan and Bird, walked the tightrope and fell off repeatedly with circus games and found what we were looking for in Zamzara. This week, we continue our look at March 1989 and the second batch of games reviewed in issue 47 of Zap 64, along with what was also going on in the UK albums chart that month. Graham, tell us of the games that we will speak of this week. In this fun-packed episode where we do indeed question if tree ball mints were in fact a minty bit stronger... We set out on another landmark point-and-click adventure, this time on a desperate race against the clock before everyone in the world gets turned completely stupid in Zack McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders. We head into Sinclair Spectrauma Conversion Land with a bill-postering monochromatic man-strawberry in the horribly punned Paceman Pat, Blend Rambo, Ghostbusters, Jet Set Willy and potentially Dex's Midnight Runners in another Sinclair Spectroubled Nightmare in Ghost Hunter before finally getting our snazzy nuclear arms race style in check and flying off into space to shoot out a load of missiles in the C-64 conversion of SDI, Strategic Defence Initiative. While we debate the results of the Minty tests, which weirdly concluded that where a Mint is shoved does potentially impact its strength, we also become a bad dude, or a ninja, but not both, or possibly either, in the sidekicking and plurally dubious conversion of the arcade Dragon Ninja. We also slap shot, wrist flick, skid, slide and punch over the ice with a giant wooden tick shape. In Power Play Hockey, USA vs USSR, we discover the relatively uncharted exploring possibility of a bearded pancake with legs in the squat resolution challenged superhero and then question the aviation type of flying objects before slipping into a branded caped leotard and getting all protectory in Superman the Man of Steel before finally getting some miniature hand arrows and strategically throwing them at a numerical circle for fun in the enticing and whirly Jockey Wilson's Darts Challenge. In the end... The simple extra strong mint remains the pick of the packs, no surprise there. Unlike some of the games in this week's selection, some of those were clearly found under the sofa cushion and covered in sofa crud and dust, not for public consumption. That's quite a good impromptu impression of Dumbledore. He did a bit of a Dumbledore then. What, tell us of the games that we'll speak of this week? Yeah, you went half Dumbledore. <laughs> what, that dumb? <laughs> <laughs> bulldor. You went I, just bulldor. Went, I just went either full bulldor or dumb. You pick. You're a dumbbell. <laughs> Great. Yeah, thank, thanks for that. <laughs> my life is complete. <laughs> my, my esteem needed that today, thanks. Cool, with a boost like that. Of all the backhanded compliments I've ever had, that's the one that slapped me in the face hardest. Yeah, that's the one that left a ring dint in my forehead, yeah. <laughs> I've been full dumbled. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, cozy selection, isn't it, this week? That sounded cozy, what I just said. I haven't said it yet, but it sounded good. Uh, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure there will be at least one good one in there. Packed full of beans! <laughs> full of something it really is oh dear um i'm just gonna get it out of the way at the front because uh we, you, people may not listen do to it. the end who knows but if you wish it's to better. support the podcast yeah but you don't know do you they get to the game, the the game bit. Like, uh, <laughs> you don't know what we stick at the end um <laughs> if you wish to support the podcast you can do so you can do that financially you can head to our patreon patreon.com forward slash zap to the past you can chuck us yep. a pound a month aces or you can go for the full fat experience which is four pound fifty over here with inflation as it is around the world god knows what that's worth i have no idea these days i used to say it was price of a pint of beer but it's not anymore it might get you a thimble full yes 
Yeah. And so, yeah, small pound 50, and that gets you access to the Discord, access to the episodes early, ask us questions, ask the podcast stuff, uh, join in with the end of year reviews, and anything else uh, that we can do. I think you get money off at the, uh, for the uh, merch as well, don't you? Yes. Well, yes, the patrons do get a discount on our wonderful merchandise available on both Redbubble and on zaptothepast.shop. That's cool. There you go. So either of those places. So yeah, so, you know, pay up front, you get money off, as long as you pay more money. It's a great... (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We like the way it works, and that's the way it works. That's the the way it is. It's a brilliant scheme. Um, But yeah, you can do that, or you can go to Ko-fi, which is ko-e forward slash zap to the past, and buy us a coffee if you wish to. Yeah, Um, lovely. If you don't wish to do that, you could leave us a review on X. Bloody X. X. It's Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Twink, Twix. You can't just <laughs> name something X. Should we just call it, call it Twix? There's two bars. Yeah, well, that's probably what people are going to be saying instead of tweeting, isn't it? Uh, yeah. what, what, how do you even, what is the vernacular for p- doing a tweet was Twitter, I, wasn't I it? I read X? somewhere that it's a zeet. A what? That's, a, that's some kind of shaving cream that I, I don't, don't want to be involved in. <laughs> either, that or, yeah, either that or it's a, it's a, cr- it's a cream to remove hair. Well, like, either like way, it ain't good. I don't like it. <laughs> no, no one does. No. So there you go. That's all that out of the way. Should we get into some games? Yes, let's roll this wagon and see where we go. All right, let's get into our first game this week. And we have nine again this week. Nine. Nine? Nine. 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 Blimey. Uh, nine. No, no, nine. I wonder it took <laughs> so long. That has them, No, nine. That has them rolling in the German Isles. Um, <laughs> let's get into our first game. And Graham, it's over to you. To tell us what it's like to be Zach McCracken in the world of the alien mindbenders. Wow. It's a long time ago this game was made. 35 years ago. All these were. Um, publisher <laughs> was, of course, Lucasfilm Games. Why don't they just call it Lucas Games? I don't know. We'll never know the answer to that question because it doesn't exist anymore. The coder slash designer slash person that pieced together the scum engine bits for this. I think they called them scummies or scumites. I can't remember. Or scumlets. That's what they called them. Scumlet. The scumlet on this was uh, David Fox. Now, David Fox was a long-standing Lucasfilm person. He was the guy that made Rescue and Fractalus. In fact, he was the mm. guy that coded the engine for Rescue and Fractalus, or one of the guys. Mm. Pretty clever guy. Absolutely. Um, he also was partially responsible, I think, for some of the stuff for Man- Maniac Mansion, of course. Labyrinth was another one, big one of his, and then the Indiana Jones games, and, well, things like that. Um, this is also part-coded by Matthew Kane. The graphics here are Martin Cameron and Gary Wynick. He did the Eidolon and Maniac Mansion. Mm-hmm. And the musician here is Matthew Kane. So, yeah, also, sorry, sound effects such as they are, Matthew Kane and Chris Grigg. And so the second Scum Engine game is upon us. And, of course, this is the next game in that sort of series, as it were, not sequel, but in the series of those games, uh, from Lucasfilm, after the highly successful Maniac Mansion. This one was written and directed, like I said, by Lucasfilm game stalwart David Fox, with insight from an American spiritual philosopher and self-described practical mystic, a guy called David Spangler, who at this point authored about 13 books on mysticism and spiritualism mm. and all that kind of stuff. From the outset, this was actually meant to be a serious game, sort of, that, that dealt with some of those ideas of, you know, sort of practical mystic stuff and all of that. But in actually, in a sort of in a sort of adventure quest tone, so more along the lines of Indiana Jones type vibe, really. Um, oh, really? But okay. with the timely intervention from Ron Gilbert, a certain Ron Gilbert, who we have all, of course, come to know and love, he decided and, and advised David Fox that this game would be better suited with a strand of humour in it. 
And so the humor in this game was kind of added in, as were some of the other elements. So although this isn't a direct Ron Gilbert game, his influence is very clear upon it because of that. And they're all a small team working together. By the way, I didn't realize how much they were at the arch nemesis of Sierra Online at the time. They were like warring factions between the two. And very big rival, well, not big. One was a very tiny part of an organization. One was quite a big company making lots of these kind of games. And they were very much in their shadow. Oh, that's a lot. Mm. There's a really good um, video interview with David Fox where he talks about that, which we'll put in all the show notes. Anyway, back to this game. So the story then. The game is set in 1997, believe it or not, where an alien race known as the Caponians have taken over the telephone company, or just global communications in general, and are using a mind-bending machine that emits a special hum to gradually make everyone on Earth stupid. Classic. (laughs) Um, Luckily, another Earth-friendly guardian race of super-intelligent aliens known as the Scholarians had foreseen this dastardly Caponian plan and left plans for a defense system called the Scholarian device, along with the components, to activate it dotted around the Earth and with some on Mars. The device parts need to be assembled and the whole thing put together and activated while there is still time. And clues on how this can be done are sent via dreams to a small collection of people on Earth. You play as Zach McCracken, an erstwhile yet frustrated reporter for the National Enquirer, at this time frustrated from getting daft stories about two-headed scrolls and stuff like that, which is in the opening scene, who has one of these dreams and visions and must piece together a plan, find the people from his dream and the places from there, and set about getting together the Scholarian device components, assembling it, and then activating it to save the whole world from getting stupid. Zach isn't alone. The visions and dreams were also given to three others, Annie Laris, a freelance scientist, and Melissa China and Leslie Bennett, two Yale University students. Between them, and through working together, they must explore jungles, mazes, ancient and alien monuments, and more, to put a stop to the Caponians. It is played out as a point-and-click adventure. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of crux of it. So this game obviously uses the SCUM engine. I can't remember what that stands for now, but it's the SCUM engine. And so the layout of the screen and the way it plays is essentially the same as Maniac Mansion. The upper two-thirds of the game window are the graphic point-and-click area, where the game characters and backgrounds render for you to navigate and explore. The lower third is the verb control system, here presented as a series of words, similar to Maniac Mansion, that allows you to walk, pick up, use, use the items, give, etc., that kind of thing. You control things as you do, did, in all scum games. So you have a crosshairs and you move this around the game window with the joystick pressing fire to highlight items of interest, interact, walk around, that kind of thing. And you use the verb controls to specify certain actions. So far, so good. It's a pretty easy overlay system, reasonably intuitive, but any crosshair joystick control has some limitations in a game like this, I always feel. I'll come back to how that manifests in a, in a little while. The graphics here are essentially the same kind of style as Maniac Mansion, so medium res, with relatively okay drawn, if somewhat simplistic, backgrounds and characters. They're not going to win any design or animation awards with this, really, but they work in service of this kind of game. Okay, The main characters are a bit samey, if you ask me, which is a shame, because they were more varied in Maniac Mansion, because you could choose from more characters, but that actually becomes with a bigger problem which i'll talk about later mm-hmm. um, and the backgrounds do vary in quality here which does have a wider bearing on how this game plays through and i'll come back to why as well the crux of the game is of course a point and click adventure and so much of the interaction is based around this mechanic and using it to solve puzzles pick up objects identify clues and things like that a lot of information and clues are present in the environment location objects and in some of the things you got with the game um, including sort of the code sheet and the newspaper that came with it and everything 
And so you need to, as you did with Maniac Mansion, carefully walk around your environments, taking notes if you can, or on occasion, just piece together things as you go to derive the game logic. It's very much a this leads to this, that leads to this, this leads to that kind of notion with these games. That's kind of how they work and kind of operate. Okay. Part of this game sees you flying around the world to a bunch of locations, meeting all sorts of odd characters, and even heading to the surface of Mars. As the game progresses, you will be able to switch to three other characters and control each of them which is very of Maniac Mansion, and it's just sort of a mechanic they come back to and then actually walk away from completely, which is interesting about the whole Scum Engine type games. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's worth noting in order to complete this game, you must finish with all the characters alive. Death can happen in this game, as well as some other traps. Again, I'll come to these as some of them, well, your tolerance of such things can depend on your feelings of point-and-click games generally. But we'll come back to some of those things. The game is very beloved by the general C64 fraternity, the spiritual successor to Maniac Mansion, and of course, the second C64 scum game, big deal. Indeed, though this game would eventually appear on loads of formats and have relatively modern remakes, fan-made sequels, and more, the original version was for the C64, which for me gives this a special place in the point-and-click games history because of the way it was made and for the computer that it was made for. This was a C64 game, never mind all the other versions that came later. As a game, there are good things going on here, and of course, there's some problems. Indeed, problems that at this stage seem inherent for the Scum Engine and design choices and things that later seem to be remedied for titles such as Indiana Jones and perhaps even later down the line, Monkey Island. So some of the problems we encounter with this particular type of game in these early ones they don't tend to come up in the late ones because they figure out how to stop it from happening. But again, I'll cover all this in a bit. So the good things first off then. This is a fun adventure with a nice slice of humour. All said and done. The puzzles can be challenging, but they are not insurmountable and don't have to be completed in a totally linear way. There is some wiggle room here if you make a mistake or miss an object. The character of Zack is a clear precursor to Guybrush Threepwood from the Monkey Island games. And there is a clearer line between this and the later Scum games than perhaps there was from many of the others. There is a fun mix of locations and things to encounter, and some of these being a clear and direct influence on later games, the dancing natives giving you a secret code, for example, which is immediately ripped off and put into Monkey Island, or Monkey Island 2, I can't remember which one it's in. Mm -hmm. The controls have a good level of intuition, and so you don't find yourself over-clicking on the whole, and there is some forgiveness around objects in terms of their click box, which is a nice affordance to the player. So you don't have to be precisely quite on things. You can just be around the edges of it. And certainly with the words, the way the verb sort of word system works, it does remember some words that you place in. So you don't have to click and click on something else. It will actually, if you go off something, it will remember the last two things you put in there. And saves you a little bit of going to and from it, to and fro with the control, which is quite nice. Unlike Maniac Mansion, though, there are less cut scenes, which means you are in character for longer. And with regular saves, you can at least happily progress through this. The original did come with a code sheet slash protection system, which means that on occasion, you will need to identify a specific pattern in a section and enter this to be able to continue in the game. If you can't do that, you can't continue in the game. Although, obviously, the version we had was protection removed, shall we say. (laughs) This manifests... This obviously manifests when you're buying flight tickets, which are an integral part of the game. You also have money in this game, which you need to purchase flight tickets with. And there are additional puzzles to think of around that. The pace of the game is good, and there is less pick-up and put-down logic here too. All of those are good things, but it's not all Moonlight and Roses. There are Mm -hmm. some issues here, of course, as well. It does play a little slower than Maniac Mansion, at least it seemed that way to me. There's quite a bit of walking left and right here, and it can feel somewhat laborious to do so in this game because there is a lot of going backwards and forwards to some of the locations. You can also, unfortunately, back yourself into a corner or a logic corner in this game, which is a little bit of an unforgivable thing with some of these games. Spending too much money, for example, means you have insufficient funds to buy a flight ticket and you can't continue. Or not having specific objects at certain points can leave you totally stranded. You can also die in this game. For example, Zach can drown or suffocate or even get eaten at certain points. When this happens, not only does this make the game incompletable, 
but also seems it can sort of carries on for no reason. So you would need to revert to a previous save at that point because you cannot finish the game if, mm. if one of your characters has died, which sort of makes sense, but doesn't make sense. While some of the puzzles are good, some of the locations feel either pointless or pointlessly frustrating. The jungle sections in some of the locations, which are a series of just doors really, offer no puzzle and are just an annoying series of steps clearly designed to hide the relatively small set of locations in the game. And in fact, in an interview with David Fox, the inclusion of the May sequences game is something he deeply regrets to this day because he, he literally hates them. And he said that when he was playing the game himself and playtesting it, they annoyed him when he got to them himself and he thought, should I keep these in? But he did, unfortunately for us. So bit of a design cock up really. So like I said, the jungle sections are just doors. They offer no puzzles, no annoying series of steps and the idea of them hiding small lo- small set of locations in the game. The locations are reasonably varied here but there are definitely fewer of them. Some parts of the later mazes are played in the dark as well, which is really stupid. And perhaps one of my first big complaints about this, there's at least three mazes I can think of where you're in the dark. You don't have Mm. a lighter, you don't have a torch, you just got to wander around in the dark. Really daft to do that. No, it's really daft. Alongside that, some of the mazes are way too long and rely on you going through the right series of doors in the right order, which if you don't know what you're doing, essentially is potluck. Now, in an interview, again, David Fox describes the logic of this like, as I can, and the best way I can describe it. If you go through two consecutive doors in the jungle sequence, for example, you'll get to where you need to go. If you double back on yourself, it resets every time. So people who were confused, if they go backwards, if you went through a door and then you go with another door to the right and then another door to the right, you'll get, you're more towards where you want to be. If you went to what, through that door and then went back on yourself in some way, then it's going to reset. And it meant that people were stuck in some of these sections inadvertently for quite some time, not just until by really by luck, they happen to just not break the rules and go mm. forward. It's different later in some of the mazes where you've got to go through the right sequence of doors, which is also really stupid. But mm. again, they are a big frustration and a big complaint point for me. Along, say, alongside that, some of the mazes are too long and see you having to go through the right series of doors, which is potluck. Those sections quickly become the most frustrating and pointlessly challenging in the whole game. And there's at least one, two, three, four, at least five, six maybe of those in that game. There's a lot of mazes in one game. That's um, too many mazes. Too many. Yeah. Often as well, they'll just lead to a single room with a couple of things to do. And that's the end of that. So it's not even a good payoff when you get to some of the end of those mazes. It's quite frustrating in the way that works. So the Componian aliens seem like a tertiary thought in much of this game too. There's very little in terms of interaction or cutscenes with them. And so their plan feels less like impending doom or menace nor do you get a full sense of what they're actually about or what they're doing. Something that didn't happen in Maniac Mansion, you was very clear of the parameters of that with Maniac Mansion. It's less clear in this game what the aliens are actually doing, apart from making everyone stupid. They just don't really do much of else. In fact, there's a certain point when you go up in a spaceship and you meet the alien leader who dress, dresses like Elvis for some reason and just lets you go. It's like, it, it, it's sort of really odd. It's really weird. Mm. So you don't really know what they're doing, why they're doing it. It's never really explained. I guess maybe it doesn't need an explanation because it's just part of the whole, he's a, you know, the whole... National Enquirer type mentality and spiritual idea that there's just loads of stuff going on in the universe, man, and all that kind of thing. But without kind of an impending menace or doom, it's unusual for a game like this. And the later games of the Scum Engine do return to the more of those cutscenes to drive the narrative. Monkey Island is kind of the one I go to because it's my favourite of all the Scum games. And you can see how they sort of thought, actually, we better put some more of this narrative stuff in because without that, without going back to Chuck's cave, it doesn't really, you don't feel the menace of anybody. You don't, you know, it's just like, it don't kind of work. So the cost here is big for this because without the interaction and idea of what they're up to, you generally don't have the same drive to get to the end of the game. You don't, don't really, it doesn't feel like there's an imperative. What's the big imperative in Zach McCracken and Alien Mindbenders? Well, you've got to stop them unleashing the stupid machine. Eh. <laughs> 
Because yeah. it doesn't manifest anywhere in the game. There's a problem. Some of the clues are obvious in the game. And for the most part, you're not going to have too much, you know, noggin scratching to try and reach uh, before you start to reach for a guide or a walkthrough. But there are some locations and items in their locations that seem added to flesh things out for something to do that have no real bearing on things. So items at the bottom of the sea hidden in sweet seaweed, for example, or a small key at the end of a long series of mazes. This also manifests when you notice that certain locations can only be flown to by other locations, meaning you need to buy a flight ticket, fly to the first location, then immediately buy another ticket for the second location. That's just stupid. Um, yeah. later you can, and later you actually get the yellow crystal, which means you can teleport around. But even that can trap you in a logic loop if you're not careful. You've got to be very <laughs> careful with that. Also, at least a couple of the puzzles are time-based, which means you need to do a series of actions quickly before you are seen or captured, or before a certain timed event takes place. On the plane, for example, you must distract the flight attendant long enough to open all the overhead lockers and get the oxygen tank, the cushion, and the lighter. Objects you cannot progress without. This must be completed in a certain time frame, or you are seen by the flight attendant or the flight lands at a certain point. So that's it. You, you, do you get one shot of that? Well, you've got to go through it again. Your money is a finite resource, remember? You're not going to get multiple goes at that. At a certain point, you need to switch between characters and grab items or throw switches. And on Mars, you need to top up oxygen or you will suffocate. This one, since there is no indication other than a message popping up very briefly before you die, is a right pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. Now, I've played through Zack McCracken and Mindbenders more times than I ever care to think about. And I can tell you, it still pisses me off because it just happens. It just happens. All of a sudden, it's like, oh my God, I'm choking, I'm choking, I'm dead. And it's as quick as that. You don't get any time to really do anything. And, you've got, and there's only one point you can get oxygen. And you've tra- if you've traveled by a tram to get all the way back to where the pyramid is on Mars, you can't get back to your van in time to top up an oxygen before you're dead. You can't do it. That's bad. Yeah, it's a real frustrating point. You've got to really make sure that you you know, you know top up with the oxygen and stuff. And you, it's doable, but if you didn't know you had to do it, you're going to get there and die. And if you haven't saved, well, I hate to think what'll happen. Screams and tears and there ain't no songs of joy and tears. There'll be plenty of tears of sadness, I tell you. <laughs> So it's a scum game and it has scum problems, all of which are, are later ironed out, but there are silly traps and annoyances. There's just, you know, they are there. If you're willing to tolerate those and you will know some of them from playing Maniac Mansion, if you, you know, you'll know if you by playing those games like Maniac Mansion and this, if you fit that bill, if you're tolerant of this, then it, there's a good game here with some fun ideas and a decent adventure. The controls feel quite responsive with some nice affordance and logic to how they interact. It's a clear stepping stone too. And perhaps this should be seen as one more step on the point and click ladder where some ideas work and some don't, but gradually things are going in the right direction. There are some good puzzles, locations, and characters, and there is at least a sense of progression, story, and an ending. Graphics are okay, fun scripts, and some laughs along the way, giving this a nice pre-Monkey Island vibe. It does have that. But if it isn't your bag, then you might well view this game as quite troubled. There are frustrating parts, the totally dark mazes are utterly stupid, the jungle sections unnecessary, the pace is slower, and the alien threat feels like an afterthought. Indeed, you can feel the notion of Indiana Jones in here, perhaps more than Maynard Mansion if you think about it, which is why it feels less narratively enabled than it should. And you can also fall into those horrible logic traps, which is never a good thing. I mean, some of them are obvious. Like if you, when you come, at one point you get picked up by an airplane and it goes to the Bermuda Triangle and it disappears and then you know you end up being being back into the sky. And if you don't put in your parachute, you're going to die. When you hit the, you know, hit the water, you're dead. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not necessarily that instinctive. Th- I mean, obviously your parachute is, but it's not an instinctive first thought to do certain things in this game. And just the human brain doesn't always work the way, you know, in the immediacy of, oh, God, I must put that parachute on. It's going to catch you out, probably little things like that. Now, for me, I've got a bit of a soft spot for this, really, though more legacy than appreciation. Having battled my way through this so many times, including trying to navigate many broken copies on disc back in the day, which I can tell you was a curse. 
Um, <laughs> it was satisfying to finish this finally way back in the day. And it still has that sort of appeal to me. I think the storyline appealed to me more than Maniac Mansion. And because the route of this has a bit more of a direct line to Monkey Island, it perhaps set me up for enjoying those games much more later on than I did at this point, although I did, did still like it. On replay, while much of the charm for me obviously remains a little bit, I was reminded of the silly logic problems and the stupid dark mazes, and those are probably blockers with better scum games out there now than this one. But this one does have a sort of a line today, the tentacle Indiana Jones and Monkey Island, and while looking at some of the utter gaming rubbish getting published in 1989, this does represent a proper platform-specific game that was built and engineered for the C64 and on disc. That's not a bad thing, because there's been so much rubbish that's been released. Mm-hmm. So as a footnote then, there was a DOS version of this released later in the same year, then an Amiga and Atari ST one, and then something for the mysterious FM Towns, whatever the hell that was. Um, then in 2015, a re-release was launched on GOG.com. There are at least 10 fan-made sequels, including such delights as The New Adventures of Zap McCracken, Zap McCracken Goes Looking for Hot Coffee, Zap McCracken Between Time and Space, Zap McCracken and the Alien Rockstars, and Zap McCracken and the Lonely Sea Monster, to name but a few. Some of these are downloadable, some of them are good, some of them are not so good, but the links are put in the show notes for you to find. This game didn't set the world on fire in terms of success. In the US, it just really didn't land and was not considered a commercial success. The game fared better in Europe, with David Fox later writing, I think Zack was far more popular in Germany and Europe than in the States. I'm not sure why. Maybe my humour was more European in nature. Don't know about that. It's a good game if you go with it and you accept its failings, but avoid and skip to Monkey Island or Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis if you want something that's not going to stick you in some of those logic traps and perhaps plays a bit faster. I have a soft spot for it, but I know that it's flawed and there's no way around that. And I can sort of, on replay, I'm like, yeah, the flaws are, some of those are game design choices. And is that a little bit unforgivable at this time, really? Mm. Or are they just finding their feet? I don't know. How did you find it after all this time? <laughs> well, I mean, it's technically very accomplished in in the sense of the engine and everything and the way it works. And as you said, the point and click is nice. The affordance, it's easy enough to do stuff. I like the fact that you just click on an object and then you don't always have to, it'll remember the object. So you can just do use and or work and pick up and do that. There's sort of the little remembrance there. So you don't always have to go back yeah, and click on nice the object. Yeah, touch that. And things like that. That's all fine. But I'm not going to add much more to what you said. Maybe what kind of, I mean, I'm, I think I've been pretty clear as we've gone through these games. That these, they're just not for me. I, they're just a genre that has never clicked with myself. Maybe it's because. <laughs> Very good. I point and click to myself. Yeah, I didn't even didn't mean that. <laughs> maybe, and I thought about it, maybe it is because around this time, you know, we spoke of things like the Eidolon and this first person stuff and things like that. I didn't have a disk drive. So. Yes, yes, I think uh, it could so be a bit. It, it's probably just one of those games that I never. When you're in those, probably those early formative years and you're looking at games that you're going to sort of stick with, these kind of games just pass me by and I just found them like a bit. Yeah, I don't. I can't play them at home. I don't have the time to play them. And I just. I don't know. I don't you know. I gave to go. I did a bit of wandering around. I picked some stuff up. I got annoyed by the fact that I couldn't just move the bloody um, the dresser to get my key or whatever it was. And you have to use a bit, bit of paper. I mean, that's not logical. Yeah. And just reach further <laughs> under or lift the dresser or shove it out of the way. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's things like that. You know, my brain goes, as oh, a furniture. Oh, it's got to move the furniture, grab it. Oh, no. Yeah. That's weak. But, but then a piece of paper is enough to pull it out. I was like, oh, that's... and that was illogical. <laughs> and I thought, this won't work. Oh, it worked. That's stupid. Anyway, picking stuff up, use the thing on the thing, watch the result. I got a TV clip, you know, lifted up the seat cushion oh there's the remote yeah it's all right okay i watched the clip some people landed on mars and i wondered about a bit i I just lost interest i just do i can't these games and i think this one in particular is a little bit slow i mean that's just a bit too slow for me i mean it's obviously a very good one i don't get me wrong if you're into these and you love them you're gonna love it it's very influential as well i think i think you're right in that i can see more of monkey island in this than i could in maniac mansion Mm. but then again monkey island's never been a series that's really tricked me either i think i actually preferred neuromancer though 
I spent a bit more time playing that when we had that as another point and clicker. It's I, a good I think, game, that. I think I found the setting in that more. Um, yeah, I can totally dig that. Yeah. And but I, I mean, and obviously, I, you know, they were they had the bonus of actually working from a from the book and, and they had it all mm. sort of laid out so they could they had that to draw from so maybe i don't know and it, yeah but this needs acknowledgement it's great in 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 the fact of what it is and like you you rightly say we've played some other dog eggs and turds recently this is clearly a very good game it's just not for me point of clickers never yeah and that's totally fair and i think i think because it's nice to go back to this now and again and replay it and i've been doing a lot of digging into david fox a little bit not literally that's gross <laughs> Um, I've just been house. sort of just what right, he's camping outside his house, going through his bins. Um, <laughs> he, eats, he eats a lot of chicken. I tell you, no, I don't really. And just as I've gone through some of the sort of interviews and things like that, a few things sort of become quite apparent that um, Lucasfilm, obviously, uh, Lucasfilm Games, um, obviously a very small, dedicated team. Do you know they didn't shave their facial hair um, while they made Zap McCracken for the whole period? Because they figured out that it would save them about 16 to 18 hours of dev time. Um, <laughs> Because that's what, how much shaving? crunching they were doing. Yeah, because that's how much time it, sa- it saved them in terms of how much coding they could do. Because they were on a very tight schedule, obviously, to get all this done and coded and put together and everything else. Um, <laughs> crazy. And also, this was... Um, they'd been. I didn't realise until I'd watched one of the interviews how heavily piracy had impacted them with Rescue and Fractalus and with Ballblazer. Particularly, both of those games got pre-released before they were actually published by the pirate scene, um, okay, including yeah. a version of Ballblazer that was called Ball Blaster. Um, mm, and okay. it was a, actually a preview version, or at least an unfinished version, but it was released and sneaked out before they actually got published properly. And that greatly affected them, which is why this comes with seven pages of code sheet, comes with all of the extra stuff. There's loads of clues that you know mm. they made it as difficult to do without the code sheet. And also the code sheet was printed on dark red cardboard as well um, that came with it. So you couldn't just take it to a photocopy machine and photocopy it because it didn't photocopy. All right. Um, okay. So they'd taken you know, steps that they could. And it was because this game came on two discs on the C64. So quite a lot. Quite a lot. Yeah. One of those things. But it's the interviews that I've read, it's David Fox's game all the way through. But he's a very sort of mild kind of guy. He doesn't, you know, he speaks about his time at Lucasfilm Games with sort of, you know, sort of quiet tones. He's not, you know, he's not as lively as Ron Gilbert or somebody like that. But mm. I don't know how much of, because he wrote all of this stuff and all of that spiritual stuff that's in Zach Kraken. That's straight from David Fox. So all of the going to mystics and gurus, all of that kind of stuff, all of the non-religiously based stuff that's replete through Zap Kraken, you know, is essentially mm. about off-world aliens and all that Egyptian gods and everything. But it's interesting that he wrote, wrote all that into it, and maybe that was what put off, you know, some of the parts of him, the American audience, because you know, who knows? But it certainly was not a big hit, which is kind of odd, though. And I think I, I never came across the original ever. I mean, I hate to say it, and uh, sorry, Lucasfilm Games with all the piracy and that, but I. I had about nine different versions of this and that came across my transom back in the day. No, I mean, big games like this just weren't getting stocked at WH Smiths and Boots and places no. like that. They just weren't. Absolutely mad. So no chance was ever seeing this out in the wild. No. But, you know, if, you, if you're into your point-click games, it's one of those ones you'll have played it. You must have. <laughs> you will have played this if you're into mm. them. Yeah. And if you're not, then I would suggest, you know, if you're wanting something a bit more cerebral and a bit more intense go on playing your answer because that's just as good a, if not better probably than zap mccracken in the sense of the depth of gameplay and the depth of un- interesting stuff in there but if you want the sort of the next one in the lucasfilm games tradition pre-indiana jones and all that then obviously zap mccracken is a good recommendation for that. yeah there you go that's zap mccracken the alien mindbenders did get 93 percent fully deserving of that i think yeah i think so i think it's, it should be around the ni- 90s somewhere yeah there we go all right let's move into our next one which is ever with our second game i am sure <laughs> will be equally (laughs) as good. (laughs) 
And that game is Pasteman <laughs> Pat. That's Pasteman Pat. Okay, this is from Silverbird, and there is one person behind this. According to Lemon64, it was created by Jeff Calder. On Moby Games, though, the creator is down as Linda Calder. Um, I don't know if they've changed their name or gender or if it's a different person. or I don't know. I have no idea. Anyway, Paceman Pat sees Pat, the hero of the game, left in a spot of bother. After putting up all the posters around Groovetown yesterday, they've woken (laughs) up to find their arch-rival, Nasty Norville, has gone and rejigged them all, (laughs) making them look all stupid and muddled. Never once stand back from a challenge and let someone else muck up his work, Pat heads back out with his trusty brush and ladder and attempts to put all the posters back as they should be, whilst fending off the attacks of Nasty Norval and his henchmen at the same time. So that's the story, such as it is. This is a sliding block puzzle game that is made harder by rubbish controls, slow scrolling, and an inability to see the whole picture at once, which is stupid. I'm just going to put it out there. It's just stupid. The game offers 12 difficulty levels <laughs> and five different posters to get through. Now, if you care to go to the agenda, Graham, I've actually just put the cover for one of those games in there that's all kinds of wrong. Demon's Revenge on the Spectrum. There's so much wrong with that pe- picture. I don't know what that wizard is doing and what that pointy thing is that he's sort of looking all kind of pleasured at with the demon the in the back. Is, what the hell is that? <laughs> we'll post those this. Mil- milk, those milk churns going off... Something at the bottom there. Exploding milk churns. I don't know, but he, I don't know, but that demon in the background looks like he's going, hey. I don't want to know what that wizard's doing. He's, no, I don't either. No. He's obviously seen something in that book with his massive hand. <laughs> so shit. It's so terrible. Anyway, there are five different posters to get through. They're all based on games. There's Ollie and Lissa, which we know of, Stunt Bike Simulator, right. which we're aware of, Bubble Bobble, which we're also aware of. Then yeah. there's this nonsense Demon's Revenge. Rubbish. Which we've never heard of, and Zarax. Now, these are all Firebird games, so, you know, they're clearly it's a little bit of light advertising, but the last two were never on the C64, Demon's Revenge and Zarax. No C64 releases for them. That gives you a clue as to where this came from. Mm, it was Spectre it? and Amstrad versions of those games. So, yeah, so this did not originate from the C64. So, and two of the posts in the background were never released, so we're really getting me like, what's this game? Anyway... You load the poster separately from tape, but the game itself is exactly the same no matter what picture you choose. The title screen offers 12 difficulty levels split into three groups, these being Kid Stuff, Smart, Alec, and Mensa only. Essentially what this means is that the higher up you go, the more panels there are in each puzzle and the more jumbled it is, but the more time you also get to figure it out. So the first the basic level, level one, should we say difficult level one, has 60 seconds and there are, it's split into four panels, so it's dead simple. Then it's six panels, eight panels, so on and so on and so forth. Once you've chosen which difficulty level you want, the game appears. And what we have here is another Spectrum game masquerading as a C64 game. This is someone who's, again, someone's written a really, really good Spectrum emulator. They're obviously using the Karnov engine and just put it onto the C64. <laughs> you play Pat and you control him as he moves freely over the picture on his ladder. Which is kind of weird. I don't know how he's yeah, doing it's, it. It's like his ladder must be on wheels or something. And, and so stupid. It's just ridiculous. So the image itself as well, where you've got Pat, it's seen through a window for some reason with some kind of 3D-esque yellow blocks on either side. I don't understand this. I don't understand this layout. Don't it's- try. <laughs> <laughs> Beneath the main window is the difficulty level you're on. And then your lives, indicated by little pat icons. And I decided these, the percentage of the puzzle you have correct and the time left to complete it as it counts down. 
Pat has five lives. And random objects will also fly around the puzzle, and if they hit you, you will lose one of them. As you move Pat, you can push the pieces of the puzzle up, down, left, or right by holding fire and pushing in that direction. So like you would a sliding block puzzle, essentially. You've got to get, you know, you have to get the picture in the right, in all the pieces in the right place to solve the puzzle. If you get the puzzle solved in the time limit, Pat does a little dance, there's a little bit of music, and that difficulty level is given a tick on the main screen, and then you can pick another one and do it again with more panels. If you choose another picture, you lose all your ticks, though. So even though it's all the same process you go through, that's annoying. I don't know. I, I didn't go back to a previous one, so I don't know. Should you run out of time, it's game over and you have to try again. There's a sign for a toilet in the bottom right of the play area because it scrolls around. Like I said, you can't see all the picture. So there's, so there's background images scrolling around. You scroll down to the bottom right. Um, it just says toilet. And if you press fire down there, you will then the, the whole picture will appear. So you can see what the picture is supposed to be and where the actual sort of different panels are. So you can try and sort of work out what's it what it is and then you go back to playing it and that's it the music from the title screen onwards through all the little ditties that play and anything else oral is painful on the years the visuals are just a spectrum game single color backgrounds and sprites pat is being pat is a big round thing with spotty dungarees and a massive flat cap which is odd actually because on the front cover he's a tall lanky thing so it <laughs> makes no sense whatsoever the controls are slow it's almost impossible to see the enemy objects in the background as everything is one color it's all the same color so the enemies that go around you the background everything it's all you know white white and black uh. the a bit of red now and some blue on the background but you can't see these objects moving around because the way that the screen scrolls around so jerkily you could just they just merge in with the background it's rubbish and horrible the scrolling is like i said as you move is jerky has this effect for moving the puzzle pieces around so as you slide them up and down they're like dig 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 oh this is awful the layout of the screen is cramped not being able to see the whole puzzle at any one time is frustrating and annoying and having to start from scratch uh, should you run out of time and have to suffer the intro music and death music is just too much. This is a bad budget game. This is simply not taking advantage of the C64's capabilities in any way. I mean, it's a sliding block puzzle. We've seen these before. You know, we had better these. I mean, go back to Spitting Image. Spitting Images. Yeah. It's essentially, which is the same kind of thing, which is way better. Because why was that way better? Because you had all the screen on, you had all the picture on the board at one point, you know, on the screen stupid, at once. Stupid, this is so stupid. ridiculously bad. Why put it in a, a window and having a sort of floating... And he is fat. There's no way around it sort of thing. A floating fat board. What are they called? Bill poster. Bill poster. Yeah, someone like, you know, just floating around on a ladder. It makes no sense. It's stupid. The game is ugly. It sounds terrible. It plays badly. It scrolls jerkily. It's crap. It's just been ported over the spectrum. You know, we've got something. We had Zamzara this month. That was also a budget title. Pretty much the same price. And look how cool and you know fast and colourful and C sixty four looking Zamzara is. Yeah, yes, you know, there's no reason for this to be ported over. No, no reason whatsoever. And to not even actually, you know, maybe we should do some games that the C sixty four owners might recognise as some of the second, you know, fourth and fifth posters. Nah, just stick stupid Demons Revenge and Zarax on. They don't care. Makes no sense. Maybe they'll go buy them. They don't. They can't buy them. Oh yeah, that's stupid advertising. Advertise something that they can't buy. Who thought that was a good <laughs> idea? Idiots. Genius. This is rubbish. Rubbish. I hated it. Awful. It got, what did it get? 19%. Too much. Mm, I hated yeah. this and everything about it. What about you? It's a monstrosity of the <laughs> epic proportions. I mean, look, have you heard of multiverse theory, right? You've heard of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm well aware of it. Right. Yeah. So well, multiverse theory, anyway. like, there's, there's, yeah, exactly. There's a, version, there's a version of every single component of in lots of multi-universes and multiverses, yeah. each one with a slight variation. You know, you get the idea of it, you know, and this theme made films about it. In every mm-hmm. single one of those multiverse places, this game is shit. Every single one of them. It's not a good There's not, there isn't anywhere. one. There isn't. No, there isn't. Not in any multiverse. Not anywhere. I mean, this would be crap in 1983. Yeah. Um, it's utterly, utterly, utterly abysmal. I mean, I'm, st- I'm still struggling to figure out what exactly I saw. 
a puzzle game of some kind in there. Maybe, maybe, but puzzles, you normally need to see the big picture. That's kind of how puzzles work. Some kind of single colored half human, half strawberry creature <laughs> moving around a ladder somehow, as opposed to going up and down a ladder. The ladder just floats around with the aim to paste posters or move them or something. Menaced by a cluster of badly realized skulls and rolling pins yep. in a small game window with just what is this? What does it all mean? Well, whatever it is, it's utterly awful. This is not a game, nor should this piece of garbage ever have been realized or released for any kind of money. If even a single copy of this was sold, then somebody's been ripped off and badly, even at two pounds. This is one of the most dreadful looking and awful games on the C64. We've said that we've been saying this more and more, but it is. Alongside crap like Lee Enfield, Alice in Videoland, and all of its fellow brethren, whatever you might call those <laughs> Win things. Bobner. Win Bobner. This nonsense should have been denied a score from Zap. It is crap. It's a waste of magnetic tape. It's just a waste. The, the tape was a waste. It's just wasted tape. Shouldn't have happened. Just left it, leave it on the spectrum in Amstrad. We don't need yeah, yeah. this. There's we no reason it. We didn't for want this. It. If you'd have done a straw poll at the time and said, does anyone want a copy of Paceman Pat? Firstly, I'd have said, that's a crap pun. And secondly, no. <laughs> So, it is a crap rubbish. Pun. I wasn't even going to actually go there about the about the name. It's just don't don't give it any more credit. We've already spoken about it far too much. It is bad. Yeah, proper dog egg that one. <laughs> really dog egg. It's really bad. Really, really bad. bad. Let's move on quickly. Let's leave Paceman Pat up that ladder forever. <laughs> Let's move on to our next one. Hopefully, it will be better. Huh? Is it better, Graham? I suppose it can't be any worse. It's Ghost Hunters. Ghost Hunters. Can't be any worse. <laughs> you. Um... <laughs> Hold my pint. <laughs> <laughs> so this is from Codemasters. Codemasters to the rescue. Good old faithful Codemasters. Codemasters, they've released some bits and bobs here and there. Some of it's been bad. Some of it's been good. Some of it's been bad. But <laughs> it's Codemasters. Good old Codemasters. This was designed by the Oliver Twins. The Oliver Twins. Good Spectrum games they made. Manager, for some reason, who's credited is Mark Baldock. Um, the coders are David Blotts and Andrew Blot. The Blots. Thank you very much. The Blots, everyone. The Blots. <laughs> hey. The Blots sounds like a kid's TV show from the 80s. Um, the graphics are by Nigel Brown. The title screen, which is a strange credit to give someone, is Stephen Day. I think he did a lot of title screens back in the day. Mm-hmm. Stephen Day. Uh, and the musician are yeah, the Blots again. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it, oh, it's yeah, that's why. And it is quite a good title screen, although I'll come to reasons why it's also strange. And the musicians here are the Blots again, David and Andrew Blot. The Blots. There they are, the Blots. The Blots. Um, so the Blots, um, from the Blots to the Plot. From the Blots <laughs> to the Blots. Plot of the game. Professor Twilight, who owns Nightmare Mansion, <sighs> offered a substantial reward for anyone who can rid his mansion of the many ghouls, ghosts, and zombies which inhabit it. Your twin brother, Chuck Studbuckle, Took up the challenge three days ago and hasn't been seen since. (laughs) It is your duty to go into this house of horrors and rescue him. If he is still alive or die horribly in the process if he isn't. Okay, that's weird. You enter through the front door and proceed from room to room to find Chuck. Obviously, many evil creatures will appear, causing your terror to increase. This is shown on the terometer. A reading on this meter causes your vital macho energy to decrease. This is shown on your matchometer. No, it <laughs> isn't. Fair, it's just macho to energy. Be fair, some of this did actually make me laugh for the stupid yeah. names and the stupid it's, stuff. And I was thinking, stupid. okay, this could be quite funny. Yeah. And then the pain will begin. Um, <laughs> so it's important to destroy the creatures quickly or just plain old leave the room. Get out. You don't have to mm. be there. Don't, you don't, your macho energy doesn't have to be depleted if you don't want it to. To replenish lost energy, you can drink the bubbling cauldrons of magic potion, which you may find from time to time, or just stand around when there's no ghosts. Not do it as well, slowly. There are many lifts in the mansion which you will need to use to explore the rooms. These must first be activated by finding the flashing objects that disguise the switches, such as the goblet and script, which may be nowhere near the lifts. 
which they operate. Yes. All right. I can tell you, most of them aren't. All right, so that's the plot of the bloody game. This is yet another conversion of a Spectrum game. Sorry, sorry, let me be correct myself. Yet another conversion of a rubbish Spectrum game. Mm-hmm. Hang on, sorry, <clears throat> let me clear my throat there. Yet another conversion of a rubbish, manic minor-ish, derivative Spectrum game. A game with many mysteries, this, Adrian. Why does it blend Rambo with Ghostbusters? Whoever wanted that? <laughs> At least on its marketing material, anyway. No one ever wanted those things. Nobody. Rambusters. Rambusters, yeah. <laughs> Why does the why does your game sprite look nothing like the guy on the cover or indeed on the game title screen or even the game at all? No, who's that guy on the left? Why do you gun. change into a monkey when you jump? <laughs> I don't know. Why? Why does your macho energy deplete so quickly anyway? Why have that at all in a game like this? What is it? Why do you need it? Yeah, why do you have it? Why? The game is a manic minor style room to room thing with colourful, I guess, but small graphics. You must either defeat the baddies or get out. The longer they are there. The more terrified you become and the quicker your macho energy depletes. As I said, once this is depleted, you will be dead, along with your will to live and sense of both value and respect for Codemasters. You won't want to try again, that's for sure, as this game offers absolutely nothing new, a lot of things that are old and crappy, and none of them any fun whatsoever. The game starts with a title screen-ish, with a horrible slow piece of music straight from the BP1983 Tuna Daybook. The C64 has a three-channel multi-voice SID chip, one of the most advanced 8-bit audio chips ever created. Be gone! with your foul spectrum <laughs> bitonal audio laxatives. <laughs> Away with your shrill bleep-fueled mini-sick-inducing aura horror. Get in the sea with your nasty audio carbuncle tootlings. This also has a view of the UI that is confusing at best and crap at, well, also best. Um, to the left, the game logo, which is nothing like the logo on the box, and has the letter O highlighted for reasons. Because <laughs> it's O. For reasons. Below that is a black and white high-res image of a Rambo-like character for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> Because he's the one off the cover shooting a brown, <laughs> the cover, yeah. shooting, a, shooting a man, a, a, what looks like a monk. <laughs> exactly. Under that is your score and tyrometer, and then the Codemasters logo. Adjacent to that is the Macho Energy Bar, which isn't a, by the way, isn't some kind of uh, protein bar that you can buy in the shop. Macho Energy Bar is what is a bar of energy that's called Macho. So we're clear about that. <laughs> in the top right square is the game window, high score area, with another version of the game title without the O highlighted, and some animated spiders. You can select three for keyboard, joystick, or one or two for one or two player. Do this, and your game will start. Okay. The words Ghost Hunters will appear. Just in case you can't see the title on the screen, or the previous ones on the ti- two ones that are on the title screen. So in case you forget what it's called, Ghost Hunters appears. I'm guessing it's <laughs> meant to be somebody saying it for some reason. This, in is, this appears in a NAF-like blue box that is in the Commodore font. Even the words score, ghost hunters, and macho energy are in a different font to that. Why? Just use the same typeface. In the game window, there's a room with multiple levels, some token haunted mansion-style background series that looks crap and like a miniaturized version of Cauldron 2. It's colorful, but small and high-res, I think, most all of it. Character graphic type thing. On the bottom right is your character. You're never given a name, so I guess it's just Mr. Studbuckle because you're never given a first name. You know your brother's (laughs) name, but not his name. Bob. Bob. It's Bob Studbuckle. And you can control him, and I say that in inverted commas, with the joystick. He looks nothing like the character on the game box or the screen. Indeed, he looks more like he's wearing dungarees to me. So this could be a Dex's Midnight Runners game. Could be. Um, to move around, you push the joystick. Jump will see you maybe jumping up, maybe directionally, maybe not. Just it's a bit arbitrary, really. Yeah. Do exactly what you want when you want it to. Holding fire sees your crosses for your machine gun appear and bounce around uncontrollably for no reason. You can move it or slide it around, and you can shoot around at the baddies to kill them temporarily. You don't look like you're holding a machine gun at any point, so I'm not sure what you're shooting at or how you're doing it. You then progress around the rooms looking for Chuck by walking, going up pointlessly difficult lifts and steps and switching things on. You can top up your macho energy here and there, 
But I wouldn't advise that you do that because that will prolong your life. And trust me, you'll want to die quickly in this game before your self-esteem does. For the short time you're alive, you'll be menaced by an array of single-color character sprites, skeletons, demons, etc. Some you can kill, some you can't. Why? Why can't I kill the little rat things? Why? I've got a machine gun. Stupid. Uh, Why include characters you can't kill in a game where they take away your energy really badly? Don't make that a thing then. Anyway, trust me, if they do kill you quickly, they're doing you a favor by ending things more swiftly for this. And that, as they say, is that for me. Even at budget price, this is just bloody terrible. Crappy, tiny graphics, rubbish backgrounds, slow responses, naff puzzles and naff level design, awful enemies, little to no logic, token blips and sound effects. And to top it all, it's next to bloody impossible anyway. The constant drain of your macho energy will see you dead before you get to the second or third screen, even if you want to, which you won't, I can assure you of that. This is reprehensible garbage for a C64 game and proof once again, like we need more proof, really, that this kind of fidgety high-risk crapola has no place on the C64. Seemingly, these Oliver Twin games are best kept for the old best on the spectrum deal. Works for me. Keep them there. This is crap. It's awful. Did you like it? No. I mean, this, I'll come to why, but there is an idea here. The idea behind it, the, the sort of concept of the thing there's 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 a couple of bits of this that i thought yeah okay but the execution of it is very very poor very poor it looks and it looks really horror it looks horribly dated by this point in time having more in common with games like jet set willie as you said and the like it just looks like a one yeah, of those, yeah, yeah. It's, you know it's, it's come from that very spectrum yeah very spectrum and, and as i said with paceman pat being in the same issue as something like zamzara shows us up for what it is the things that i do i um not the first time not the only time we'll see it this episode but i'd like the two-player co-op mode option um although that just yeah yeah, yeah. although That's that fair. just means that two of you will be unhappy <laughs> <laughs> It's just sharing the misery, right? Yeah, it's like, you know, at least then you could have a laugh at this. But so basically what that means is one of you controls the player and one of you controls the crosshairs. Yeah, it's so, a nice touch. So that's uh, that's okay. I mean, that's nice. The plot is the same as Luigi's Mansion by Nintendo. I did think, I was trying to think, is it the same as Luigi's Mansion? It's it exactly is, the it? same. Mario gets kidnapped. He's his brother. Luigi goes in to rescue him. It's and the same just, plot. And also just, I was thinking when I was playing it and I was trying to think, does this is this not basically the same as the game that we played in the last episode for the last episode that was a spectrum conversion? Quite possibly. We've played we've played loads of these. Yeah, it was just yeah. um, it, it sort of brought one to mind a recent one that we played where we hated that as well because it was kind of a crappy one color spectrum thing and this. Like I said, I mean it's the same plot as Luigi's Mansion, but obviously Luigi's Mansion is brilliant. <laughs> this is clearly not. Uh, this is not fun to play in any way. It's slow, dull, and ugly. Not for me. This and weirdly looking at this, this seems to have been released in 1987 so i've no idea what it's doing turning up now in zap i don't know whether they got old strange um but it seems to all versions seems to have come out in 1987 so i don't i don't know why this has just suddenly popped up in 1989 but it should have stayed in 1987 and even even in 1987 this is terrible so uh that doesn't excuse it it. it's a bad bad game the cover is crazy there is rambo what looks like shooting a brown monk while um (laughs) barlow from salem's lot looks on (laughs) It's stupid. And in the stupid, ba- stupid. and in the background, there's a, there's a couple of other sort of there's a red and a white ghost. It's very odd. It's very well in the bottom right hand side. There's a couple of gold plates. It ain't good. I don't know what's happened that cover. Uh, yeah, this is dreadful, dreadful, dreadful thing. Let's move on. We've still got one more for this part. So yeah, let's hopefully things pick up a little bit. Maybe. And this is SDI. SDI. Bit of an odd one, this. An odd one. This is SDI, or Strategic Defense Initiative, or even Global Defense, as it was sometimes known. It goes by many names, Hmm. this. In in Germany, it's Johan 
in England. It is John. It's, <laughs> uh, it's all over the place, this one. Originally an arcade release in 1987 by Sega and was clearly inspired by the Strategic Strategic Defense Initiative, or Star Wars, of the Ronald Reagan era of American politics. Indeed, from the instructions themselves, it reads, SDI, Strategy and Arcade, at its best. This classic Sega arcade, classic Sega arcade hit, in the, in the true Ronald Reagan Strategic Defense Initiative style, is that a style? Is there a thing as the strategic... Well, he's really rocking the Strategic Defense Initiative style there. <laughs> What's that all about? Um, What's that mean? No. <laughs> no. Test your skills in both offensive and defensive warfare to the limit. Well, it's all out, and this bit made me laugh, it's all out nuclear war. <laughs> you can't read, it just reads it's all out nuclear war, but you can't say it's all out something without it being like some kind of you know, yeah. happy jolly thing. It's all out nuclear war, and your mission is defend <laughs> your country from enemy nuclear space weapons. No, they're not. They're not no, space they're not. weapons, and save no. the planet from imminent catastrophe. They're ground launched. <laughs> <laughs> no, enemy nuclear space weapons. I mean, I don't Fair know. Enough. I think somebody's been watching Superman 4 or God, 3 or something. Probably. Anyway, this was ported to numerous systems, and the C64 port was handled by none other than Source, um, who you may remember did the conversion of Desolator, Halls of Kairos, yeah, that weird commando that. thing where you went around slapping enemies. Which I didn't mind, but um, but you you weren't so keen on. Yeah, slap Mando, yeah. Yeah. As ports go, this is certainly on the achievable side. Um, and most of the game, bar the, uh, the intro sequence, which sees uh, New York get nuked um, of the arcade, has been squeezed here, has been squeezed into this here, into a single load. Um, so the game opens up with a title sequence akin to the arcade. It's got big SDI, big angular letters flashing away. But it's exactly the same as the arcade game with the name Strategic Defense Initiative underneath them, whilst the rather weak tune plays away. That's not from the arcade game. I don't know what the tune is. I, I did listen to all the way through the arcade music, but I couldn't tell if this was a version of one of the tunes from it or not. It sounds like it should be, but I don't think it is. It's an odd odd mm. thing. Either way, it's not great. Press the space bar gets you to the options. I can't remember who actually did the music. It was noted by someone. Let me just check. I should have wrote that down. Bear with me. The musician was Paul Summers, by the way. Sorry about that. Sorry, Paul. We usually mention you people, but you probably didn't want to because it's not a great tune. A press the space bar gets you to the options, and you can choose a one-player game, two-player game, and more interestingly, you can choose to play with keys, one joystick, or two joysticks, making this game a rather interesting cooperative game. Second in consecutive. Weird how these things come mm. in pairs sometimes, how these just sort of happen. So I'll go into how that works in a little bit and how the game more plays out in a bit. So once done, you're into the game. So the UI is at the top and the bottom. Um, it's on the select screen as well. It's one of them ones where the UI is omnipresent, apart from on that SDI bit, uh, and shows player one and player two score, the number of lives left at the top, and, and at the bottom is the stage you're on and a massive damage bar that will slowly fill up. Um, and, you know, you don't want that to fill up. The game puts you in control of a satellite in space. Essentially, this is a sort of, it's kind of a scrolling shooter. It's a weird side-scrolling shooter game, but not quite. So I'll come to why in a bit. Um, so you're, you control a satellite in space and, it's, and the, it starts off with what it calls the offensive stage. And as you zip around, you'll also see a cursor moving about around you as well. Tapping fire will shoot with the cursor, but if you hold down the fire button, then this will lock you, the satellite, in place and then allow you to move the cursor um, around the screen freely, much faster and more freely, um, and you're constantly firing at it. So essentially, you kind of lock yourself in place and move your cursor to aim at the everything uh, that's going on because from all sides of the screen, various weapons and enemies will appear. These range from missiles to satellites to bombers and all kinds of things, sort of UFOs, all, all sorts of stuff. And you need to move your cursor over them and shoot everything whilst also keeping yourself out of danger. Not 
too dissimilar. I suppose something like there's, there's elements of missile command, I suppose, in this um, a little bit. So, you, you know, you need to let go of the fire from time to time to move the satellite out of the way of incoming objects, because if anything hits the uh, satellite, then you lose a life. Um, and that's how this game works. This goes on until the stage is clear. As you do, there's usually a planet, maybe something that sort of scrolls across in the background or the star field and stuff. It's set in space. It is what it is. Um, if you manage to kill everything, and you can do it, then you get a perfect round, uh, a 20,000 bonus, along with a dancing duck, um, which is straight that's out of the good. arcade game. But, you know, here's what it is. You get a dancing duck. If you didn't kill everything, then you progress onto the defensive stage. So this is essentially what it is. Is like missile. You can imagine this like missiles are coming towards wherever your home base is, and you've got to try and knock them all out. If you knock them all out, great. You go on to the next defensive stage. If you don't, some get through. Then you go to a sort of defensive stage. Imagine, I suppose it's like a sort of more uh, longer drawn out version of Black Hawk. Yes. Um, uh, in that, that you've yeah. got that sort of two screen, two sort of screen sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Then, yeah, so if you go to the defensive stage and also as well, anything that gets past your your uh, damage uh, meter starts to fill up as well. So the defensive stage, bombs and missiles will rain down your planet. You kind of get this planet that comes up from the bottom of the screen, sort of all brown and yellow. Um, and you essentially just have to protect it from the missiles of raining down from the top of the screen. Exactly the same kind of um, controls, except you just move the cursor around and shoot and destroy everything. Should you take hits or things make it past the offensive stage, then as I said, your damage bar slowly fills up and it's game over if it fills completely and something gets past and hits your ground base. Yeah, so that's it. Done. You're done. No matter how lives you've got left, it's game over. You've lost your home base. If you've managed to either destroy everything on the offensive or kill everything in the defensive stage, it's on to stage two and then another offensive stage and so on. And the waves get progressively harder and so on and so forth. It's an arcade game. So that's what it is. You know, you just repeat these two stages on until you all, until you die, until it gets too much for you. As you play through it, there are power-ups, which you can collect. There's like a little sort of floating green thing and it's got like a little P at the bottom of it. And if you shoot that uh, and then manage to collect it with your satellite before it floats off screen, you can get extra speed. You can get multiple cursors to move about and you can get extra firepower means bigger explosions where you shoot very reminiscent like i said of a uh, missile command it's quite it's very easy to pick up and understand what you're doing once you get your head around it and in some ways it reminded me of sort of modern mouse and keyboard shooters akin to sort yeah, of hotline, so. hotline miami in its control scheme where you aim at the mouse cursor you know you hold down mm. wasda and move your thing and you move your cursor around and you're always facing it and you shoot at that almost not not quite a dual stick shooter but sort of a cursor shooter so it's one of them yeah yeah um and yes yeah, so it's only that the interesting thing here is the two joystick mode which allows one player to control the satellite and another to control the cursor and unlike in ghost hunters um which was painful to do that would have been actually quite a lot of fun in this i think because this actually game is not too bad um so mm. if you had one you know shooting because you can both, you hold down fire, you both shoot, but you, you know, you've got one trying to sort of keep away from all the enemies, one's trying to go towards the enemies. So it's a quite a nice difference in sort of playstyle. So I quite, that's quite an actually nice addition to this. And the closest thing I can think of something akin to this is the Catalyte in Whizball perhaps, mm, um, yeah. or, you know, or the Golem in Druid, which is not the same thing, but it's that second player controlling something else, where the, what, where, which is not, you know, doesn't take damage kind of thing, where you need to work together in order to progress. I think that's a really good addition to the game. I don't know if that is in the arcade game, but here, you know, it's a very nice addition. So you can actually, and I think you can have two players, so I'm not even sure if you can have four players at playing this. So it would be quite interesting no to play. Idea. I don't know. The visuals in the game are okay. Everything is medium res. It's, it's a bit chunky. Yeah, Everything is our favorite medium res. Nothing stands out, but nothing is too rubbish. The missiles look like missiles. The bombers, everything's a bit scaled all over the place. The missiles are massive. The bombers are really small. Your satellite's mm. quite big, but it's not too. It's not terrible. It's an approximation of the arcade game that it was based on. It, and the game itself is perfectly fine. 
it's just a little dull. There's no in-game music, which I think it could have done with, and the waves of enemies are just a little slow to arrive. And then factor into that, the collision detection on things hitting your satellite is a little on the punishing side. I was pretty sure that some of the things floated past me, but they still maybe blow up, and that's a bit mm. annoying. The blame with all this really lies with the original arcade game, which shares the same issues. It, just being a little dull to really hold interest for long. This is not really a game I was familiar with in the arcade. It's never something I've heard spoken of very much. I did go and have a quick go on uh, MAME. It's it's exactly what this is. It's very it's not too different from what I was playing on the C64 version. It's just dull, which, you know, so whilst this is a perfectly decent arcade conversion, and it is, it's only as good as the source material, and that material was never that interesting in the first place. You know, mm-hmm. if you're converting something that's a bit boring, expect boring. And this just gets a bit boring pretty quickly. And what did it get? It got 50, uh, sorry, it got 64%. 64. Probably about right because the conversion itself is decent, but the game mm. itself is just dull. Mm. What did you think? Well, firstly, let me just get that bloody horrible music out of the way to start. <laughs> what a dirge that was. Ugh. The game then, I suppose, well, you know what? It had some nice ideas and pretty good looking graphics, actually, in, their, in its own way, its own logic. It's all, like you said, very medium res, but they look like the arcade. And it isn't a bad conversion of the arcade because I went and had a look. Um, I think it's just missing some key parts of the arcade logic, I think. The Missile Command style part doesn't quite work on a single joystick. I think this is a game you would really enjoy it with two people and two Mm. people playing it. When you're sort of holding your fire button to move your satellite and then moving your target around and and doing it that way, it it starts to work against you. The the more that comes on the screen a bit later, by level three or four or a bit later into it, you don't really stand a chance because it's almost impossible to really do it. But that said, it does look the part and and what I'll give it that because it does it does look look quite good. There's enough to sustain a reasonable shoot for a while. Probably works better with like I said with two joysticks at full price though. I don't know. You're sort of aligning yourself up in a very difficult alleyway there. As much as this is quite a good shooter, is it in the same league as your Armor Lights and stuff like that? Yeah. You know, you know, and that's really that's the benchmark for these kind of arcade style shooters. I know it's a different variation of shooter as such, but your, your price point is the same. So you're looking at the shelf. Am I going to buy this conversion of an old arcade I've never heard of, which looks half decent, or am I going to go for Armalite, which you know blew everyone's minds? Well, but it's not without merit. I have to give it credit where credit's due. Um, it looks the part, plays like the arcade. It's very similar. It's all there. It's just I don't know if it's something I'm going to want to keep going back to. I think you'd need to be two player with this because one player you're going to get bored quite quickly of it. Mm-hmm. But it, it did sort of look like an arcade. It was a good approximation, so it's not all bad. Sixty-four percent is about right, I think. Yeah, that's like I said. Yeah, exactly. It's a good. It's a good port of a. Of an average arcade Average game. arcade, yeah. And it seems to be the way of it. You know, we've had a lot of average ports and bad ports. Just port anything the, you can, you know, isn't it? Yeah, but it's just, you know, obviously it's the, I know. And I'd never really heard of it. I, as soon as it was, when I read that it was a big Sega thing, I'm like, oh, okay. Mm. It was but released by Activision yeah. as well. I don't think I mentioned that, but yeah, this came from Activision. Yeah, but it's, it's, you know, it's just a bit expensive, I think, for nowadays. You know, well, not nowadays, but back in 1989 days. Yeah, yeah. Is what it is. There you go. That's uh, SDI in Strategic Defense Initiative style. I'm going to start dressing yeah. that way. See what this that is not STI. <laughs> dripping. <laughs> dripping. Hey. <laughs> just no. No. <laughs> no. And on that drippy note, we're going to take Ew. a quick break. <laughs> <laughs> You're uh, a bad dear. man, Mills. <laughs> And um, we'll come back <laughs> dried out uh, after that break, and we'll be going on. We'll be looking at the uh, uh, we'll be looking at the albums released uh, in March 1989. So please do, please do stick around. We'll see you in a bit. <laughs> 
and we are back. Let's get into some albums. March 1989. Number one, Graham, for the first two weeks of the month is uh, Simply Red with a new flame. Yeah. Yep. They're back. I didn't like the old one. I didn't like the old flame. <laughs> no. no. Third album, this. Mm-hmm. Third. Massive, ridiculously multi-platinum, multi-million selling hit. Um, he's 63 years old, Mick Hucknall now. Yeah. Which is apparently, and I've gone into deep, you know, I won't go into the science, but there's a lot of science around this. This is uh, 282 in bread years. Yeah. He's, you know, quite, he's, he's considered an ancient elder in the, uh, the, the, the bread village. Yeah, you can tell he's there. He's like you can with a tree. If you cut off a slice of him and count the red rings. Never cut a slice of Mick Hucknall off. Because it's like the thing. It just grows another Mick Hucknall. Well, exactly, yeah. And then you've got two Hucknalls. Exactly. And you know, it's, it's like the saying. <laughs> two Hucknalls is worth one in the hand. I don't, I don't think I'd want any of Mick Hucknall in my hand. Um, and you know what's weird is that um, that's how he was able to be at so many places at once and please so many women. Most of the women, and I'm sorry if you're one of these p- victims, people, we're actually, you were sleeping with a bread duplicate, a, what they call a bruplicate, um, um, because he was able to, you know, basically clone himself in bread and he gave it some intelligence and they went, they just went out there. They just went out. They're out there. There's still, there's still some out there. You never actually collected them all back up. There's still no. some out there just doing their own thing. If you go to some places, you'll find a, a bread hucknell. Um, yeah. They're just doing menial tasks now. They're like Terminators when they're, when the mission was done. They just go and look, you know, become carpet sellers or curtain uh-huh. fixtures, you know, that kind of thing. Weird. He was known. He was known to shed cobs. <laughs> I'm glad you said shed because that's I. I would think of something else, but good. That's shed, good. you know, just dropped them off. <laughs> anyway, there you go. That was the first two weeks. If you were simply read, uh, yeah. or how many that was that in bread years? <laughs> I don't know. Well, if he's 63 and it's 282 in bread years, then a quick bit of math would be like about I don't know four parsecs. That'll do. Yeah. There you yeah. go. For the following week. It was Anything For You by Gloria Estefan and the Miami Sound Machine. Um, if you're unsure if this is even an album... Yeah, um, find it. it it's, it's actually a re-release of uh, Let It Loose, a 1987 album, Let It Loose, which was re-released in Europe in 1988, 1988 1989. Sneaky. Um, so it's a re-release under a different name of the same album, as far as I could make out. That's well cheeky, isn't it? Bloody yeah. <laughs> um, Miami Sound Machine. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> It'll be, I mean, so yeah, we're, I'm pretty, I mean, we're, we've probably talked about Let It Loose before, but there you go, and it's that one. More importantly, though, for the final week of March uh, 1989, yeah, yeah. Uh, is Like a Prayer at number one uh, by Madonna. Yes, it came romping in there, didn't it? Yes, it did. Yes, it sold a lot. On the back of her going to war with the Pope, remember? Yes, yes, she will. She, it was controversial, as we said last time, wasn't it? And uh, this is the fourth studio album, apparently, Madonna. Um, mm, she worked yeah, with Stephen be, yeah. Bray, Patrick Leonard, and Prince on this album um, mm. with her co-writing and co-producing all of the songs. So considered her most introspective release at the time, apparently. There you go. All right. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I did. You, I mean, it's not an album I remember a lot of actually. I remember that track, but I don't remember a lot of the other stuff. No, the I remember the singles like Cherish yeah. and yeah, things like that. Like there's there 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 quite a few singles off this, um, but I, I, I probably did listen to the album, but I think by this point, I think I was tuning out of Madonna a bit. I do. I mean, I love Like a Prayer, the single, and I thought it was a great single, mm. but I think the rest of it was passing me by a little bit by this point. Yeah, so um, of course, you, you like the single, love the advert, because it was a big long advert, wasn't it, at a certain point? I, remember the, I don't remember when it was on, but I'm sure I've seen, I remember seeing a really long advert, so. For Pepsi? Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, but back then I was a Coke advocate, so I would have been like. It stop you seeing, though, does it? It does, but it would have put me up buying it. It would have put me up buying it and liking it because I was like, I was pro Coke, you know. I was in the Pepsi Coke war. Pro Coke. 
There was no war. It's in your head, you maniac. <laughs> there was in my house. <laughs> in my bedroom. Well, there was a taste well, challenge, I suppose. Not a war, yeah. which is a challenge. But there exactly. was the Pepsi challenge, wasn't there? Yeah. Well, you'd have passed that with flying colours. You didn't drink Pepsi, so you'd have known straight away. I would. They, they tasted really different. They do taste... I don't know how anyone they do. failed the, the, the no, Pepsi Coke taste you. challenge. It's like, they're two different things. It's impossible to get them mixed up, really. Yeah, it really is. And so. it's always the pub... Isn't it a weird pub question to get asked when you ask for a soft drink of a certain brand coca-cola is the only one where they offer you an alternative coca-cola if you go can i have a lemonade they don't go we've only got um johnson's lemonade it's like because <laughs> yeah. they go to, if i guess for a diet Ke- coke or a, or a coke zero they go we've only got pepsi max now just bring me a diet drink then <laughs> i'm not brand po- you know don't care does it matter put it in my, put it in my hand <laughs> leave the cup oh i can't possibly drink it if you don't have coke zero it's exactly the same as all the other diet drinks <laughs> yes Anyway, anyway, on that note, um, and fifth of March in at number five is "Stop" by Sam Brown. Ironically, "Stop." Uh, yeah, yeah, I remember this. Do you remember it? Uh, I didn't, and then I listened to the song, and then I did. Yeah, it came back. You gotta exactly. stop. Yeah, before, before yeah, exactly. Break my heart. That was a that big one. hit for her. I think it was a big hit for her. I don't remember anything else by Sam Brown, but I suspect she's one of those people that pops up all over the place, and we've just erased her from time and space because of reasons. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah it was what it is. Number twenty-eight is "Oranges and Lemons" by XTC. He's popped up again. Yes. We spoke about them recently, didn't we? Because I think they had a single out. Probably single. Yeah, off I, this, thought, I guess I thought they were like a rap rap band, but and I thought they were a punk outfit. band. But which is what they are. Well, not just punk. Well, I know they were um, punk. I'm sure they were. They used to be punk, but now they're yeah, they're, yeah. Now they've branched out. You see, this is the eleventh studio album, eleventh, and the second and the second double album by the by the band. So while this album is primarily pop and rock, there's other styles here too, such as jazz, reggae, hard rock, Middle Eastern music, and Zarian Sukus, which is a form of Congo rumba. Which <laughs> Did I you felt make that up? no, that's real. That's <laughs> a, that's that's genuine. That's a genuine thing. You can, that's that's not me making that up. Okay. That's real. Z- that's Z- a real Z- thing. Sukus. I just I've never Z- would have. Looked at the punk band called XTC and considered them masters of the Congan rumba. But it turns out that was the thing that they did. Cool. Hats off to you for doing that. That's branching out, that is. Yeah. That's diverse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess so. Not something I would have... Uh, <laughs> just imagine the record execs when they, when they got that double album. Brilliant. What are you doing here? Zarian what? <laughs> Zarian Sukas? Is that like couscous? <laughs> I thought, don't you, isn't that something you order in a takeaway? Anyway. Quite possibly. <laughs> Congan rumba. Weird. Um, at number 30 is Radio 1 by Jimi Hendrix. Aye, good old Jimi Hendrix. The classic, the man, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, a bit late. Yeah, well, it's not so much a live album, really, is it? <laughs> well, he isn't. The album no, was recorded point. live. Yeah, it's, it's the, it was released posthumously, obviously, by Ryko Disc and compiles tracks <laughs> recorded between February and December in 1967 for broadcast by the BBC Radio. Now, I wanted to take a little bit of, just a moment, while we've got a Jimi Hendrix record here to just have a little nod of appreciation for the genius of Jimi Hendrix. So now, you know, some people like him, some people don't, bit of a divisive figure in the old, you know, world of musicians and such. Most guitarists generally, all, uh, a rock guitarist certainly have a nod to Hendrix, and I think they have to have. Mm-hmm. He was a self-taught, he played left-handed on a right-handed guitar, so it was strung upside down, so he essentially played upside down. He couldn't read music, he played by ear and hands and teeth, but, you know, he, he <laughs> learned by ear, shall we say. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and in the late 1966, he performed in a club that was attended by, at the same club, was Eric Clapton, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Jeff Beck, and Pete Townsend, and Mick Jagger. They were all there at the same time. And a lot of them had gone, not necessarily to see Jimi Hendrix, but the, the, this rumour of this 
crazy talented guitarist had sort of you know obviously escaped apparently mm. the reaction was was crazy eric clapton was who at that time and still is obviously a very accomplished guitarist in his own right and so were there all those other musicians he was blown away by the skills and so much so was paul mccartney that he personally recommended him for the monterey pop festival which is where he played a very legendary performance and famously burned set his set fire to his guitar and burned it at the end which is all them rock star things you hear about like the who kicking all their amps and all the yeah. explosions and the famous things you always hear, people always see, even now it's kind of imitate it. The smashing up of the guitar, the setting fire to things, the playing guitar with your teeth and behind your head and all that stuff that people do jokingly. That was where that happened, the actual performance. It's quite incredible when you watch it. It's all on YouTube as well, which is pretty cool. And because of that performance, um, he then, that led, led to him, or the performances tied together in some way. He also obviously played at Woodstock famously, where apparently after no sleep for three days, he famously went on and played the national anthem using extreme distortion, which has become like that famous, famous played that. used at the start of the uh, Spec Ops The Line game, that is. That's right. To great great effect. Yeah, and because it's it's considered not not just, he doesn't just play the national anthem, he plays it with such distortion, such bashing, angry tones that it's considered almost an anti-war message in its own right. Yeah, exactly. Make about what you will. Mm -hmm. Crazy, crazy clever. The mad thing out of all of that is, probably off his head most of the time when he's playing yeah, pretty yeah. much you know, if we look at the video of him pretty clearly on something now he ain't just in good times row there he's having something <laughs> going on but his, te- his approach to playing guitar is no rules no holding back extreme natural technical ability and massive hands um, and that isn't a German that he t- lugs his equipment around <laughs> hello um, <laughs> um, just an incredibly incredibly talented guitarist and one that I I've, I've sort of stood a long way from and admired from a distance, but recently having revisited and almost every bit of Hint Hendrix music I could find, not just for this podcast, but just because I'm trying to educate myself with musicians that I gave a passing nod to it, over time and then sort of tried to reappreciate things. And I could tell you the guy is a genius. The guy is an absolute gifted musical genius. And no wonder people who stand in reverie. I don't know how he's figuring out how to make the guitar play in the way it does. It just, to him, it just sounds, that's how you play a guitar and that's how it sounds. Mm. I love seeing natural ability manifest like that tragedy that he died in the way he did. It was inevitable though with that kind of rock star supernova kind of idea, but an amazing talent. And I just wanted to have a nod of appreciation because I don't think we come across Jimi Hendrix records very often when we do this. So good old no, Jimmy, good old Jimmy. Yeah. Good old Jimmy. And at number 60 is Karen White with Karen White by Karen White. Self-titled. <laughs> yeah. By Karen uh, White. Yeah, American R&B singer. Who? So, Who is? Karen White. <laughs> Karen White, did we say? Karen White. Yeah, the, Karen, Karen White, White. Karen White, everyone. Here she is. The Trap Family Singers. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, uh, Superwoman became a biggest hit in the UK, reaching number 11, apparently. I think I don't know if we've had that one, or we probably will at some point. Probably will. Might not not aware of it. Uh, 12th of March, number three, The Singular Adventures of the Style Council by The Style Council. Mm-hmm. <sighs> there's nobody in their band called malcolm and as far as i'm aware it's like a legal rule to have a council mally so they don't have one because every council i've ever known has had a malcolm working at it the council mally there's always a council mally it's like like some rules that sounds like star council malice council mally (laughs) but you have to have a council mally do they have a count are they they're a council do they have a mally i don't know was the one with the uh in uh, beginning of superman (laughs) probably the council of elders joel cabell malcolm (laughs) mally cowbell there has to be a council mally someone on 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 the (laughs) was it krypton called cowbell (laughs) look it has to be a Council Mally, whichever way you swing it. Anyway, do you know what's weird about this uh, Greatest Hits album, which is what this is? It says on the box, Volume 1, and they never released a Volume 2. 
good. I suppose we should be grateful for some things. Yeah, we should Star be. Council. No, we're grateful for the Star Council not producing something. Unusual, that. But I don't think the words great and hit are something you can apply to their output. Not for me, anyway. Not for me, either. Nope. Silent S on that hit, I think. <laughs> Number 45, Fruit at the Bottom by Wendy and Lisa. <laughs> Your thing? <laughs> no. Who are they? <laughs> They're the duo that I think performed a lot with Prince, didn't they? You Wendy remember them? <laughs> yeah, I think they, no, they were no. very much of the Prince oeuvre. They went on to do their own solo thing, of which this is an album produced. I don't know if it's produced by Prince or anything like that, but it's something yeah. to do with that stuff. Not for uh, me. Now, this next one's really odd, sort of thing, but number 75 is Helter Skelter by Vow Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, they are this a, one. Yeah, they're a Japanese rock band formed in 1975, originally because mm. of the guitarist and vocalist Kyoji Yamamoto, Mitsuhiro Saito, bassist Kenji Sano, and drummer Toshihiro Nimi, and one of the first Japanese metal bands. Mm. And like you, never heard of them. Nope. Never <laughs> even drifted across my transom, ever. No. But that is some so. massive hair. Yeah, I just I went I did a little bit of because I was I was intrigued. I was intrigued. I quite I thought, like the song. I listened yeah, to one of the, I did. a couple of songs off the album. I thought it was pretty good. I thought Japanese metal felt formed in nineteen seventy five. So these guys would have been around during all of the, you know, the proggy big, stuff. You know, yeah, Russian, yeah, the big proggy bands. The, Russian, yeah, the Rush band, Rush and the big seventies bands. Yeah, and also then of course you Led Zeps and stuff like that. Yeah. So no, and they were doing you know, doing their thing, and it, their thing is pretty cool. The hair is wild on those it's Japanese massive. metal I've never bands. seen anything like it. It's like candy floss. Now it led me down a uh, it led me down a rabbit hole, and that rabbit hole was um, Japanese metal. What do you know about it? And I thought I know nothing about Japanese metal. And yeah. I know they had samurai swords, not the bands, obviously, but Japanese metal was yeah. You know, what's my but other than that, <laughs> what did I know about it? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, like you say, seriously big hair. I mean, like big. Like scary, yeah. um, and like I mean, they've taken everything. It's like they've merged several different genres from European music, not just European, maybe, but just world music. But mainly the rock hair and the sort of new age makeup merged it with a bit of kabuki, I think. Yeah, um, maybe, and then yeah. you end up with these on some of the bands. Not all of them look like that. Some of them just like metal bands. But they've got kind of very when they're glammed up, they're like mega glam and mega pristine, crazy interesting. And I found this article about fifty greatest Japanese metal bands of all time. Some of those band pictures are very odd. Let's say, let's just say it. Some of the bands themselves, very strange. Some of them, very progressive uh, in ways that our bands were not at that time. So we'll put the link mm. in the show notes. I would recommend you go and check it out. Very, It's very interesting. I, it's a world I knew nothing about, literally nothing. Crazy. No, 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 no. Totally, I was totally Eurocentric for my my music and, and America-centric. Jap- Japan... I never even looked that way, which is terrible, isn't it? Well, I don't. I don't think you can knock yourself too much. You were. You only had. Remember, we had access to what was given to us. So true. If, true I don't true. think. I'm. I'm pretty sure. I, don't, I mean, I don't remember seeing anything of these bands. I don't. You know, going to record fairs, going to like looking through Andy's records. I don't remember anything like you know Japanese metal section. No, true. I don't. I don't so I remember I that. Yeah, I would as well. But I, so I wouldn't kick yourself too much. It was just like these things were a completely. There was nothing covering this, and so we would have. Yeah. You know, I don't. Maybe Metal Hammer did something on it now and again, or Kerrang, but I very much doubt it. So, yeah. but it's I interesting. Mean, I'd, that, I'd be know, interested. I'd see if, uh, if if Brown Source knew anything about it. I mean, this could be an entire market market strand for his business that he's never even thought of. Yeah, it could be, but I don't know. That'd be strange. Anyway, yeah. So I'll, I'll, I've got a button here. I can just press it and it summons him like a cloud. It's weird. <laughs> like I, a clown. I won't do it now. You say cloud or clown? It, column A, column B. Uh, the, thing is, the thing is, if I do summon him, he's not always clown. ready. Sometimes he's on the toilet and he just you know instantly appears. I don't want that. I don't want that here. <laughs> no. yeah, so I won't do it right now. It's all right if he does because he can just cut and it'd be ready. <laughs> he might be able to, but I ain't. <laughs> I, I, I can't cut that out of my eyes. I can't, you know, I can't not <laughs> no. see it. Once it's seen, you can't unsee it. Trust me. No. 
That's people true. who listen to this podcast, I've seen things <laughs> that you people wouldn't believe Absolutely. with brown sauce. And I, I can't unsee them and I don't want to think about them. But I'm not going to press this. <laughs> I'm not going to press the summon button just in case, but that way. Probably best not to. No, uh, no. Ni- 19th of March, uh, in at number three with Southside by Texas. <laughs> nah, not for me. It was a very popular album. It did, you know, did quite good sales, but. Yeah. I don't peaked want at number three, apparently. Yeah, that's mm. the big track off it. They just they sound like what they sound like. <laughs> she didn't like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, in at number five is 101 or 101 by Depeche Mode. It's 101, isn't it? Uh, this was a live album documentary film by uh, you know, Depeche Mode. Um, mm. It chronicles the final leg of the band's music for the Masses tour and the final show on 18th June 1988 at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. I think it's called 101 because they did 101 dates. Wow, one shows, I think. I think that's why it's called What I Want, if I remember. Um, I do actually have the double vinyl album of this still. It's one of the, you know, I've kept them on oh, vinyl I and I, I have that. This is an astonishingly good live album. You it's can imagine so, it. Is, and, yeah. and the thing is as well, it's like you, you, you listen to this and it's like just amazing song after amazing song after amazing. You realize like the, all the sort of albums they'd done before this, Constructing Time, Music Mass, all that kind of stuff, some great reward. You just listen to all the greats singles off it and you go bloody hell you know it's just and this is before we get to violate her and songs of faith and devotion and you know everything after this is the first part wow yeah yeah Depeche Mode are sort of possibly you know they are clearly up there with the greatest British bands ever absolutely absolutely for consistency and quality even their new stuff is is actually pretty good as well no argument from me Um, stuff is ace yeah and this this live album is a sort of an encapsulation of that first few years from going from just can't get enough the Vince Clark you know album to yeah. becoming this mega sort of you know weird like S and M this you know weird sort of sexualization of stuff and just they're, they're mm. just incredible incredible band Depeche Mode. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I might track down the documentary film and watch it because it sounds I don't I don't know if I've ever seen the documentary film. I know it's just a live show, but I'll do like watching those live shows. Is it? Anton Corbin, I think he did. Oh, the... it could be, but either way, I'll um, I I'll check it down. Because he's the guy who did all the photography for him and who directed like Enjoy the Silence and everything. I think it's Anton yeah, absolutely. Because I don't think I don't think if it wasn't for Depeche Mode, and you you might agree with me or not on this, I don't think you would have Muse if you didn't have a Depeche Mode. Because Muse Muse in some ways seem like the almost a follow on from Depeche Mode. I know Depeche Mode is still going, but I don't think because because some of their albums are that kind of. Um, more, not experimental, but the kind of um, concept album type idea, isn't it? For there and their big concert shows, and the big mm. shows, and the big light shows that come with Muse. Depeche Mode was doing that, you know, around this time with their electronic sort of hybrid stuff. Dead interesting yeah. to me, all that. Dead interesting. Yeah, yeah. It is Anton Corbin. Yeah, he worked with them for ages. No, I'm not pressing that button. Don't worry. <clears throat> no. I have to Don't lift. Press the, that I, dial. I have to. Uh, this, I have to lift the flap and insert keys. Yeah, well, <laughs> two that's at a time. Protection system. Yeah, like um, in Superman three. Yeah, exactly. And in at number 16 is A Graveyard of Empty Bottles by Dogs to Moor. Not a band I'd dig at all, Dogs to Moor. No, not for me either. Um, this what was this That was the, weird because that's an EP that they released and it's not an album, it's an EP. It's sneaky, that. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Number 17 is Another Place and Time by Donna Summer. Surely you must love this, Graham. I don't like this. Um, this was the 14th studio album by Donna Summer. You'd think she'd know better, wouldn't you? But she met the mm-hmm. devil and the devil decided to, you know... Um, Produced this, the devil being stock aching a walkman. Um, so in 1987, 
while her and her husband were visiting the south of France, um, her husband had Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up and advised Donna Summer that she would be well served to collaborate with Stockirk and Wartman because that would be a good thing to do. Um, and then he got her to sign a contract in precious blood and then went, <laughs> <laughs> disappeared in a cloud of dark smoke. It's weird. Um, no, not really. Now, so this this was Stockirk and Wartman produced them through, and you can tell because it's horrible. Now, there were some, a lot of positive reviews. I've, I've erased those. I found out, you know, the negative ones because I think they're the ones that are true um, because the press was completely dominated by Stock Aiken and Wartman's weird. They sort of took over everything and released that much stuff that the noise out there was just, even if it was just, you know, oh, they're so great. They're just producing hits. It's a hit factory. Let's, this review, I think, sums up exactly the problem with this Stock Aiken and Wartman release and them in general. This is from Steve Simels of Stereo Review. And he writes, Summer's vintage records at least bore the stamp of a recognisable personality. Unfortunately, this comeback effort finds her in the ham-fisted grasp of British producer, writer, Stock Aiken and Walkman, the last place any artist with even a shred of individuality should be. <laughs> Stock Aiken and Waterman run a well-oiled hit factory, and while there's no doubting the guy's commercial acumen, there's also no doubting that all their songs and all their records sound alike. Summer doesn't exactly get buried here. In fact, her genuine soulfulness occasionally threatens to inject a measure of reality into Stock Aiken and Walkman's cotton candy disco settings. Mostly, though, the album is a lyrically banal, sometimes amazingly so, annoyingly clean-cut and ultimately indistinguishable from previous saw product. Ouch. Mm. <laughs> Takedown. Yeah. And it's a very good description of why it's so horrible. Yeah, it is. Shame, really. Just to go back to the Depeche Mode thing, the 101 film was directed by Don Allen Pennebaker, who was a documentary. He was really famous for making documentaries in the sort of counterculture in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And the film, they followed Depeche Mode as they toured US in support of Music for the Masses. Um, and the resulting film 101 was released the following year, prominently featured a group of young fans traveling across America as winners of a Be in a Depeche Mode movie contest, which mm-hmm. culminates at Depeche Mode's landmark concert, the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. And, is, and the cool. film is widely considered to be the impetus of the reality craze that swept MTV in the following years, including the real world and road rules. And very since wow. DVD commentaries on their own website, both Pennebaker and Hegedus, because it was... Pennebaker, Hegedus, and David Dawkins have cited 101 as their favourite and the one that was the most fun to make out of all of their films, just to go back to wow. the Depeche Mode and correct no, myself. No, wow. Well, I'm pleased you did because uh, Dave Gahan was just, I've, just, I've turned him <laughs> off. He was ringing me back to back for the last five minutes. Bloody hell, David. All right. Yeah. All right. We'll, we'll get it right, man. Sorry. Um, I just wanted yeah, to. I knew uh, I shouldn't have installed those myself. bloody microphones. He, he said it wasn't for listening in, but I'm not so sure now. Oh, he's a proper listener. I just, I shouldn't have agreed to it. It just seemed like a good idea. He said he'd wear my trousers for a month. I said I'd put my friends in my house. You he should try. Drunk conversations and all. You, know what they are. you should try walking his issues for once. Well, uh, yes. I'm, well, I'm not going to because God knows what they want to put in my house then. I'm true. Stop. And they're really small. He's got that small feet. You just end up with really crunched toes. They're not, well, they're not his feet, but that's a whole <laughs> different complicated conversation to have. And they're again, mine. I, I, mine the walls have ears here. The walls have ears here. I can't say. I can't say any more for fear of repercussions. I, told, I did tell you that was an odd uh, interior design <laughs> choice <laughs> to put ears Look. everywhere. <laughs> he said he'd wear my trousers, for, and he did. And to be fair, the guy, well, he does what he says, but I just didn't. I didn't anticipate. The, what it would be like living in a bubble like this. It's, it's kind of crazy, but anyway. So yeah. I won't bore you with any more of that information or details. It's, <laughs> no. my, it's my pain. I'm dealing with it. You are. At number 33 is Three Feet High and Rising by De La Soul. Uh, <laughs> Me, myself, and I. Three is the magic number. number. Yeah. yeah. 
I want an end to him. Brown sauce. I think he flirted with it for a while, but not my. I thought he loved him, didn't he? He was a big yeah, fan. Yeah, well, he, he, he had his. He, got, he adopted the same hairstyles, didn't he? I think at a certain point, <laughs> all three of them that? <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, at the same time, <laughs> <laughs> he did, but not my cup of tea at all. Not, uh, not no, certainly not by this point. I quite like you know I, the, the pop tunes are all right. Me myself and yeah, I and the magic number. Passable, all right. They're all right. All right. Yeah, if he's in a um, dance, if he's in a club, you dance to it probably with your mates for a laugh. Probably number fifty-four is Raw by Alison Williams. Yeah, not. Quite my tempo, this, but you know, no. if you was in your mates in a nightclub, you'd probably dance to it. <laughs> <laughs> we've uh, we've received your uh, reviews, Mr. Adams, and uh, <laughs> there seems to be a commonality between them all. Yeah. <laughs> Just like say, what are we paying you for? Well, you know, if you were in a night, if you're in a nightclub, you'd, you'd, dan- you'd, you'd dance to this review. <laughs> I tell you what, come round, we'll all go to a nightclub and we'll dance the night away. How about but that? If you're in it, I'll pay it. You'll see. It's right. Just like you dance to this. And at number 69, which I'm sure he was happy with, Loked After Dark by Tone Loke. No, yeah, I'd be more than happy with that, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's Wild Thing, Funky Cold Medina. Two yeah. massive tracks. In, over yeah, the, humongous in tracks, time. crazy tracks, yeah. And this was produced by, you know, Mike, Mike, Matt Dyke, RIP, he's died now, Michael Ross and the Dust Brothers, very famous producers of this kind of thing. So. Oh, I know the Dust Brothers, yes. Right. I've heard of those. I've heard of them. Not much else left out this month, 26th of March, in at number five was the original soundtrack by S-Express. Yes, debut album, um, obviously predominantly written and produced by Mark Moore, along with Mark Maguire. Pascal Gabriel co-produced the album's two biggest hits, of course. He was a bit of a musical genius, Pascal Gabriel, you know, very much a that kind of you know he's the guy that kind of engineered things he's got as well two, as Mark he's got Moore, he's but. got two forenames for a name must be yeah good. he's very talented very you know, crazy clever guy and of course you know everyone remembers theme from s express and superfly guy and all the other hits that came off that mm-hmm. um i did there's a lot of samples in there stuff you know um theme from s express has got 15 samples slash loops in it from other songs 15 that's quite a lot um yeah that's pretty much all of it and superfly guy's got six um so Make that what you will. I found a good interview with uh, Mark Moore about his time at S Express. I'll post it in the show notes because it is quite interesting. Yeah, do it. Finally, in at number 64 is Cross That Line by Howard Jones. I'm surprised he was still going at this point. Took three years to make this bloody thing. Three so, years? Yeah, just still going. Three years, yeah. <laughs> how, yeah. How, how long is that in uh, Simply Bread time? <laughs> oh, God. Do you know, we could work out the math to that. Quite a long time, that. Um, I don't know how many of the um, Bread Hucknalls were out there doing their thing by this point quite a lot he's quite he'd, a shed, lot. he'd shed a lot of cobs yeah he, he had there's been quite a lot of bread hooknels out there causing mischief there was an entire riot in one village where they just tried to take over anyway you know the village of long stanton was never quite the same after that dark day <laughs> no. um, and bread's still banned there you can't buy bread there you um, can't anyway it's been renamed as hooknel <laughs> <laughs> yeah H- something like Hucknall that on the rye <laughs> <laughs> Don't go there for God's sake. That's the they, that's the place where they, they all went. Um, it's a bit like a bit like the you know Jonesville, but same sort of place. Don't eat the bread loaf when you're there. No. Um, anyway, so yeah, um, this took three years apparently. It's produced by the same people that basically produced Tears for Fears. And oddly and humorously, the one track that's most famous off that cross that line, which is I think cross that line, I think that's the track. But there's a track on that album that's him playing the just the piano, very emotional track. Was his most popular by Miles, which is ironic for a guy that predominantly played electrical instruments. I always think. So. irony there's irony there and that's it not many albums released this month but we do what we can um we're gonna go away and take a quick break um that's uh three loaves in bread time exactly, yeah <laughs> and we'll be back we've got still got five games to get through so please don't leave no, <laughs> or baby don't, don't hurt me um and we'll be back <laughs> we'll be back shortly see you in a bit just check under your beds before you go to sleep for any bread hook nulls because they're still around they're still out there absolutely Wild if you they are they can be dangerous <laughs> If you see the uh, if you see the rye of their eye, 
<laughs> he can spot a real hook nail from a fake hook nail because he doesn't have a dam in his tooth. It's just a bread, like a red seed. And they don't have, uh, mm. they don't have belly buttons. <laughs> yeah, well, they won't do it because they're not they're fed like a like a rye bread. <laughs> Absolutely, they're so just they're grown. Just, they're just, yeah, they're put they in a bowl rise, and left in a cupboard. They just rise, <laughs> rise. rise over three weeks. <laughs> If you, let yeah, them, you have to just yeah, keep feeding absolutely. them yeast. And if the if you leave them too long, sort of thing, they're permanently in a bad mood. They're the sourdoughs. Oh, God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> the sour hooknolls. But seriously, though, do check, do check under your bed. Yeah, just just good advice. Anyway, we'll be back in a moment. And we're back. We've checked under our beds. Everything is fine. Let's get into some games. And our first one is Dragon Ninja. Dragon Ninja, Graham. This was £9.95. This was Imagine, I believe. Imagine. Um, Graham, are you a bad dude? I have bad dude tendencies, I suppose. All right. Or are you a Dragon Ninja? (laughs) I don't know which Um, which is which here. Here's your chance to be one of those things, as we have Dragon (laughs) Ninja. Or to give it its full title, Bad Dudes versus Dragon Ninja. Is what it was known the everywhere. Yeah. That is the full title. Just here, it's just Dragon Ninja. There's lots of odd nomenclature here, but anyway, whatever it is. It's another arcade port. This time, the original was by Data East, released in 1988. Uh, the game was ported to just about everything, obviously, including the C64, and this port was taken on by Imagine. Dave Collier doing the coding. Graphics by Stephen Wahid and John Palmer. Title screen by Stephen Wahid, and the music is by Jonathan Dunn. So this is also the second arcade conversion this week. To reference Ronald Reagan, as the game is set in Washington, D.C. to start with, and you, as a bad dude, are tasked with rescuing President Ronnie from evil kidnappers, who I presume are the Dragon Ninjas? I don't know. So it's weird that this game is called Dragon Ninja. (laughs) It's like you missed the point now. Like Normally the games are named after like Green Beret. You're not fighting Green Berets. You are the Green Beret. (laughs) This, you're the bad dude. Yeah. Uh, Anyway. The first thing you'll notice when this is uh, when you load this up is the loading screen. It's quite nice, well drawn, mm. but there's only one bad dude on it, <laughs> as opposed to the two bad dudes yes. that grace the cover of the game. In the arcade, this was a two-player game, but here on the C64, one of those players seems to have been lost. Not on the cover, though, or any of the adverts, mm-hmm. um, where both bad dudes are stood back-to-back. Hmm, can't help feel that's a bit disingenuous, really. A little bit. I mean, they're advertising this as Dragon Ninja. That's probably why they didn't call it Bad Dudes versus Dragon Ninja, because it's just Bad Dude. But it's it's odd. Anyway, once the game loads, we have a rather simple title screen with the game's full title of Bad Dudes versus Dragon Ninja on it. Someone clearly hadn't told the artist it was just Dragon Ninja or the program or whatever, because it's there, Bad Dudes and the credits. A stab at the fire button. There's not much. It's an arcade game. So basically, you stab at the fire button, gets into the first level. Uh, and what we have here is typical side-scrolling 2D beat-em-up action immediately. The controls offer a variety of moves. So uh, without... The fire button pressed, you can jump up and left and right, so have a smaller jump um, with the diagonals. You can walk left and right. You can do a back elbow or, or ankle kick with the lower diagonals, depending on which way you're facing. With the fire button pressed, and, and I'm just going to say this if you're facing to the right, you can do a super jump with up and the diagonals. Hold down the fire button and press up, and, and you'll do a bigger jump. You can face punch. So you can do basically a punch by pressing to the right. You can do a back kick by pressing to the left. Obviously, this is all with the fire button pressed. You can do a duck punch with the bottom left diagonal, a face kick with the bottom right diagonal, and duck or drop to the lower level with down and fire. It's a bit confusing, um, and I think that's the game's main problem are these controls. We'll get to that in a bit. The game itself takes place in the majority of the screen. The UI is at the bottom. There's not much of it because, you know, all the screen is game, really, so that's quite good. Uh, the, the UI shows your score, your number of lives, the high score, the time left in the level, the level number that you're on, and your energy, and when a boss is when a boss comes on screen, their energy as well. 
there are two levels to the screen for you to walk and fight on. It's similar to things like Rolling Thunder and games like that. So you've got kind of like a you know a, a walkway sort of midway across the top of the screen, and then there's the floor at the bottom, and you can jump up and down between the pair of them, and, and so you know you jump up and down as will at, at will. Um, as soon as the game starts, though, and this is where the problems start. Enemies pile in from the left and right straight away, being a variety of different coloured ninjas and women in short skirts and high-heeled boots for some reason. Your objective is simply to kick or punch everything and make your way to the end of the level where you face off against a boss that ranges from a fire-breathing fat man, uh, this is the game's terminology, not mine, an armor-clad giant or a green and gruesome giant ninja. There are others as well, I think. So it's not like Double Dragon, it's flat. So it's like Rolling Thunder, it's like Green Beret, it's like all one of those kind of things. The first level sees you fighting through the streets of the city then you're move on if you if you get through that and beat the uh the giant the fat guy you, you're up on the back of a moving truck before moving on to the sewers in the c64 version if you get past these three there's a quick load this is a multi-load but you know it's more it's only two two loads or, or two sections or th- three sections basically once you do that you're into the jungle then get through the jungle you're on top of a train there's then another quick load and that seizes into the dark caves and then onto the outside like of a factory or something i think it is before finally going up against the boss who you fight on the side of a helicopter all very cinematic all very you know 80s arcade if you beat them then you get some text saying thanks for rescuing me and um, would we like to go for a burger that's what you get at the very end so that's it anyway mm-hmm. so that's it we're just fighting through a, a series of levels kicking anything that comes near us trying to beat everything up and trying to get through it to rescue president ronnie the good things in this are that they've crammed in all the stages from the arcade which is good we said it about afterburner we say it about that it's always nice when they do actually cram everything in it is a multi-load because i think there's a lot, quite a lot of graphic data in this but it is what it is and it's good to see that everything's there the music on the title screen by jonathan dunn is also suitably pretty is a suitably pretty good eastern style theme it's okay. It's quite nice. It's not Last Ninja good, but it's decent enough. And the tunes that play throughout um, are actually from the arcade, and they're fine as well, I think. I think they're from the arcade. Sound like they were. The graphics as well, they're also very good. Very detailed high-res sprites on both you and the enemies. There's good animation and nicely detailed backgrounds, particularly note being the truck with its parallax scrolling in the second level and the sort of ninjas crawling up the sides of it. These are all out of the arcade game, so they've managed to sort of replicate and, and recreate all the stages of the arcade game. And they do look C64 versions of the arcade, but they're pretty good. And I think they've done a good job in actually representing this from both a sort of visual and oral standpoint. However, the main bugbear I have with this is that I just did not like the way it controlled and the nature of the enemies. I can't help but feel just pressing the fire button should have been a punch. We had, yeah. I'm pretty, pretty sure in um, Kung Fu Master, which this is a version of really, you know, Kung Fu mm. Master is a walk, walk left and right and kick things. You just press fire button, I think, to just do a kick. And that was much better. Here, you have to press a direction as well. So you have to press, if you press the fire button, nothing happens. So it's not like there's nothing going on with that. You could have just pressed the fire button. Having to press fire, and because they come at you so rapidly, you kind of have to press right and fire quickly all the time. It's two things to do. It's too many in the nature of this kind of game. It's a pain in the ass. Couple this with the fact that the enemies just meander about and they damage you simply by walking into you. We said this about, um, what was the other one? Uh, Shaolin's Road way back. Yes. I think we had the similar yes, sort of problem where they just we sort did. of meander about and just hit you. And it was, it was incredibly hard to hit them, but they could just wander into you and you take damage. Pain in the bloody ass because they just wander through your attacks. They don't always make contacts and it makes this game way more frustrating than it needs to be, especially with the amount of enemies that pile into you. There's loads of them. They're just everywhere and they never mm. stop. And some of them, they're just, they're just really annoying. A look at the arcade game. So I went and looked at the arcade game and it's a much more considered and slower take on the combat. There's not as many enemies. They jump up, That's you've got right. time to kick and take time with them. This is non-stop hail of enemies that we get here. 
and a control mm. system that's simply not suited to take them on. If this had been like, it's almost like they've gone for a Kung Fu Master style of amount of enemies, but they've not given you a Kung Fu Master control system to deal with that, you know, to, to, to deal with them, which is a pain in the ass. No, I don't I like the fact that trying mm. to do a flying kick means you have to do a jump, a small jump, and then press towards and fire to do the kick. No. Awkward, really awkward. Far too often I just get kicked repeatedly by the women fighters who could reach yep. me with little kicks, like little, little, little kicks, but were out of reach of my long range range attack so i couldn't punch them back and when i walked towards them they sort of backtracked and then someone else would come up behind me and punch me and walk into me and i'd be losing energy so this made what should have been a fun brawler an exercise in frustration this looks the part and sounds the part and this could have been good but it's bloody annoying to play picking up knives and other weapons was tricky as well in the heat of battle and the relentless onslaught and the finicky control finicky control soon had me turning this off it's a shame really as i said there's a lot to like here it just doesn't play well at all. And I also don't like the fact this was advertised as a two-player game when it clearly is a single-player game. I think that's quite low. Don't put two people on the front of you on the front of the game when it's a single player game. No, don't. Pick a pick a style of game. This suffers from being relentless enemies, like what we kind of what we saw in Batman last episode. But trying to sort of then replicate the controls of the arcade game. And so pick one. If you're going to turn this into a Kung Fu Master type thing, then give you fast, snappy, punchy controls. If you want this to be a bit more considered, something like Rolling Thunder and things like that, where it's a bit slower, then you have to slow down the volume of enemies and you have to make your kicks and punches. Because obviously they've shrunk the sprites and everything down. You have to allow the player time to be able to actually land stuff. And you have to use controls up and, you know, up and upright and up left and fire should have been your kick. And... And it should have been just up to do a super jump. Just press up. I, you know, let me swap. The, the, the jump doesn't do anything. So I don't know. I wanted to like this. I did because I thought, you know, it got quite a high review. You know, it got 87%. Um, but I think that's that's the visuals and the oral side of things sort of, you know, wowing to deceive. And, but, and, and the amount of sort of content that's here, which is very good. Unfortunately, it's a pain in the ass to play. And that put me off liking this more than I thought I was going to. I thought this was going to be something like Green Beret that, uh, you know, kind of hidden Green Beret that I'd never played. But unfortunately, it's not. It's more Shaolin's Road as far as I'm concerned. Not quite as bad as that, but it, it, it plays like that. And that's a pain in the ass, this C64 version. And a bit disappointing. What did you think? The visuals were quite nice and quite impressive in that way. Mm, production, you know, production of it looked good. There's a lot going on. Sounds and music all, all quite good. Just to come sort of, I did want to mention, I noticed quite a few visual bugs where I think the multiplex was glitching out a point. My legs went floating off at times and stuff as well. It's not really a giant leap from Green Beret, this, not really. Um, no, it's not. So there's some nice details and there is some nice pixel painting in here. There's some nice touches when you're on the truck and you get the nice sort of parallax scrolling effect. That's very arcade-y. It looks very arcade-like. It's mm. nice, that. Um, a helicopter bit as well, later as well. Some of those touches are genuinely nice for the C64. It was nice to see a game have that. And the, some of the sprites look, don't look too bad. It doesn't play terribly, but you, the controls, the fighting is completely arbitrary, which a game like this shouldn't be. No. So you just it's just like Yao Kung Fu level of move control. You know, you're just yes. doing random yeah. moves, and maybe you'll... You know, you'll hit the, maybe you don't, the the, co- the collision boxes on there are, ra- are wild at best. So it just, and when you, even when you pick up a knife, it doesn't seem to really help, which no. it should. That fire-breathing fat guy that you killed by the way, that's Karnov, popping up there for reasons, I guess. He's just, you know, he's, he's just decided he's going to roll in here. Okay. Um, doesn't doesn't help matters, really. I suppose it does have bosses, a game like it should. It has the component parts. The glitching is pretty prominent when you get to certain levels and certain parts of levels when sometimes the enemies will come on in the middle or top, whichever, but they get stuck and they're just kind of queue up there waiting. 
then as the screen scrolls on, they kind of drop down and it's just, it gets messy, needlessly, needlessly messy. It doesn't have to be this way. It feels like the person generator is random yeah. and it isn't yeah. random in the arcade. You know, these these characters you come across appear at certain times for, for the right reason, not like this where they're just spewing on like there's something generating them off screen, which clearly there is, and yeah. not, not generating them. And it's, as soon as you kill one, it generates another one off screen. They come walking on. All right. Keeps everything moving. Keeps the pace of the game frantic. And there's a lot going on, on the screen. Visually, there's a lot of action on the screen. I suppose that's what they were aiming for. But the combat makes this tedious to play because it's just you don't have control of the combat. And you need that in this game. You need to feel like you've got control of it. In Green Beret, you've got control of your dagger, your little stabby weapon. And you, you've got control of the extra weapon with spacebar. You, you feel like you're in control when you get, even when you get the extra bits in this, and you do even when you do that weird flaming punch thing. I don't even know how I was doing that, but it just does it. Or the backward kick that he does periodically, and you think, oh, that was good. But the question that when you, when I was playing this is, I could do it. You know, that's a good move. I want to do that again. But it's not like it's you know how you did it. It just kind of just you know, it's yucking feel all over again for me, and I hated that about that game as much as I liked the arcade thematic. I hated the fact that it's a comeback game where you're just a participant in pressing the button and the moves go off like a mm. random series of animations. So that's what kept me a sort of a distance from this. I really like the technicality of what they put together. Aside from the glitches, the background details and the scrolling are really exemplary for this kind of game, especially on a machine like the C64. That's the only thing that really keeps it moving. Everything else, the fighting, everything else, you know, it sounds are all quite good and everything. But unfortunately, while it's a reasonable arcade conversion in its backgrounds and it's some of its sprite design, when it starts to play, doesn't play like the arcade it plays a bit too random and unfortunately that's not how this game is meant to be played and i think as you rightly point out as a final footnote it's one player only and don't try and make it out that it isn't because uh, i think yeah. that's misleading and that's not fair so it got a high score in zap at high-ish 87 i maybe would have put it more around the rambo score so around the 70 percent for me yeah same here. um i didn't i didn't hate it but i just thought and it's certainly better than double dragon but uh, i thought oh, God, yeah. just it's just, um, I don't know, there's there's obviously compromises and sacrifices being made and they just seem to always sacrifice the wrong thing. So It doesn't control me, well. Me. The controls are broken. Yeah, I and think. that's, you know, just let, yeah, I'll just settle for less moves. Just punch, like you said, Kung Fu Master has punch and kick and variations yeah. therein of. I'll just settle just for that on this. You don't need a lot more than that. No, you don't. But, no, but no. What can you do? What can you do? There you go. That's bad dudes, dragon ninja. It's something or other. It's what it is. It's only one person though. And you're not a ninja. No. <laughs> in it. Maybe you're just fighting ninjas. Yeah. Uh, there we go. Anyway, that's Dragon Ninja. Let's move on because we've still got a few games left to get through. And Graham, it's over to you to play some power play hockey. My favourite. Uh, not really. It's my favourite type of hockey. Power play. <laughs> so this was £14.95. It was. From Electronic Arts. Got 50% though. Mm, something tells me that the hockey puck was broken or the stick snapped. I don't know. <laughs> the creator was Dennis Kirsch, Mark Madland, good name, and the musician, of course, now he's working for EA's Rob Hubbard. And so it's another EA Sports sim lands, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. The loading screen appears and once again, a sample-strewn Rob Hubbard piece of music will clank and bonk its way to your ears. <laughs> It's better than the previous offering, I guess, but it still feels A, unnecessary, and B, that the drums are being played in a really small bathroom. It's really clunky <laughs> sounding. Um, by the way, in case you don't know, because I didn't know, and I couldn't remember what it meant, in ice hockey, a team is considered to be on a power play when at least one opposing player is serving a penalty and the team has a numerical advantage on the ice. Whenever both teams have the same number of players on the ice, there is no power play. 
So if you're wondering oh, what power what play I mean? is, that's a power play, yeah. Oh, there we go. I've learned something. Exactly. You'll skip past the loading screen as it's such and load the main game, which can take a while depending on the version. And you'll be presented mm. with an informative title screen and a range of options with the famous kind of music, which, you know, mm-hmm. is all in the theme of ice hockey. Okay. So you'll start you'll start off with that screen and you'll be presented with, I guess it's a, it's a view of an ice skating rink from the side, but sort of slightly elevated. So a side elevation. It's international soccer yeah, style. Yes, it's, it's that kind of view. Yeah, and, and, and the the colours and everything do actually work for this. Mm. So it, it's sort of bluish ice. It's got purple lines and and brown and and yellow. And you think it might not work, but it actually does. It does actually look like an ice yeah. skating rink. And the top part of the display is kind of the it's a ubiquitous display where you've got your period for the current period that you're in in the game. On the left hand side, you've got the USSR score. The right is USA because this is USA versus U- USSR. Very of its time, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got the sort of a penalty indication system on for, for both teams underneath that. And then the, the main, everything else is the game window where you actually play out. And that's where also where the, the various selection screens come from, where you choose, you know, the different things. So you'll start with play level and where you can choose your skill level, essentially. So you've got Olympic, minor or junior. That's actually sort of league, almost the league. You're not in leagues in this, I don't think, because it's just USA versus USSR. Mm. but it's the skill level of your opposition. Yes. Then you choose your team size, whether it's one-on-one or five-on-five. Then you choose the active joysticks, whether it's single or double, because that's to get a bit confusing around this point. Mm -hmm. Then your USA or USSR, oddly with Joy 1 or Joy 2, and there's no way back after that. Well, there is, but obviously you have to get to the end. Then you choose the period time, 2, 8, or 20 minutes, just as a word of advice. Never choose 20 minutes. Never choose that. (laughs) No, don't. Then start the game or repeat. By repeat, it means go back through the options and start again, essentially. So mm-hmm. I'd like to have seen a little back option as opposed to getting all the way to the end and then going back, but okay, whatever. And then the game begins. Now, unfortunately, with no instructions whatsoever, and I couldn't find any for love and money looking online. I looked for every single version I could, whether it was Amiga, ST. I, I tried to find whatever I could. I could find no instructions to play this game. No. So I was relying on the game to give me some basic visual clues as to what was happening. It was already kind of weird that it said USA Joy 1 and USSR Joy 2 for a single player game thinking hmm, what does that mean then the view of the ring like i said is side and elevated so it gives you a view of the whole space and this takes up the bottom three quarters at least it's actually quite a good viewing area for the game and like i said you've got the sort of the top is your score and the, all the rest of the stuff the standard ui stuff mm-hmm. the players operate in this game window obviously and the action follows the puck and the players around as you skate around trying to score the players are small but they do look like ice hockey players the puck is next to invisible it's actually about two pixels wide and uh, maybe even one pixel but the background color of the ice rink is an effective kind of blue shade with purple faded lines it looks pretty authentic and you can sort of see the action a few eager faces look on too as the crowds and when you get to the end goals they're actually quite a lot of crowd and they become quite loud if you score and there's all sorts of funny music plays off and stuff like that it's got the thematics quite nicely done actually it starts with the sort of rallying audio that you sort of get you would expect to accompany this kind of thing and then the, is the in-game clicks and crashes and crowd noises it's, it's pretty well versed for that. And I quite like that. It's not going to win any awards necessarily for that, but it did kind of look and, part and play the part for this kind of game, I imagine. Now, without instructions, it was very difficult to get into this. And that's because when the play started, it was, wasn't immediately clear who was controlling what and in what way. Now, it didn't seem to me like I could pass or move or which side I was controlling. So I couldn't figure out whether I was Russia or, <laughs> or USA. And at a certain point, I seemed to be controlling a player. And then the, the, the hockey puck got passed and then I, I didn't know who I'd passed it to. And I, I wasn't sure how I'd selected them or even if I had. And it, I, I couldn't really get to grips with it. But then all of a sudden they would get it and they would score or somebody would trip and there'd be a fight breakout and penalties were issued. And it even played another one bites the dust, I think, at one point or some music came on. Na, 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 na came on, I think. It was all playing. It, so it felt a little bit like, do you remember that rugby game we played, the rugby simulator? Oh, the best rugby simulator we played. 
Yeah, yeah, that one. <laughs> it felt a little bit like, I felt a little bit like I did with that. Ice hockey was happening and I could see it happening. I just didn't feel like I was part of it. And I sort of got that same vibe from this, but I think it's because I didn't have the instruction. So I didn't know how to pass or shoot, which in a game fundamentally around passing or shooting is a real problem. So I literally had no idea what to do or how to hit the hockey puck or indeed how it played. So I can't really give any real effective judgment about that. I can only give it a somewhat biased view of what I experienced. And, I, and I'm not sure I'm really giving it the full justice it deserves really to do that. It did look to me like there is a large range of shot types you can do, like wrist shots, slap shots, and a whole load of ice hockey related stuff that I, I, I'm not aware of. And according to Zap, they are technically difficult to achieve in the game, but you can do them. Now, I don't know. I don't know. didn't know how to do it or what I was doing. And I tried pressing the button and moving the joystick and do it. It just... I just wasn't sure what I was controlling or if I was doing anything. So what it tells me is that really that if you like ice hockey and you probably put in the hours of this and you're going to buy this if you like ice hockey because, you know, you're going to... I think there's probably a good game in here because the graphics do look kind of the part. Everything was moving around the screen really well. The screen scrolled left and right following you really nicely. It gets really jumbled in there because I didn't know who to look at. But if you do, I imagine you probably could get on with it. And I like some of the little mini interstitials and the way it played and the thematics were all there. I don't generally like this kind of thing anyway, but my feeling was that I bounced off it pretty quickly, but that's because I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't have the instructions. I think if I had them, I might have persevered with it longer and maybe, maybe I'd have got more out of it. And I suspect if you bought this with a 15 quid investment and you got the instructions with it, well, you're going to bloody well have a good time with it, aren't you? Because you shelled out quite a bit of cash for it. So mm. I, I kind of played it, appreciated it from the sidelines, spent some time in the sin bin for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> but it's, it was never going to be a game that I could get into because I didn't know what I was doing, which was a bit frustrating. But I don't think that's the game's fault, I have to say. So I'm afraid I can't disagree or agree with, with Zap's judgment. For me, though, based on how it looked, I thought it kind of looked apart. But what about you? Did you get more from it than that? It's a technically pretty impressive ice hockey game. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the characters are a bit on the blocky side. So the scoring's a little bit jerky at times, but it, it works okay. And it, But it, the thing is, and it is weird, but we've seen this in other games as well, but you only ever control one character. You don't switch characters. So so once you... Right. So you can, that, can, a lot. that character can just wander off screen. And my first game, I was like wondering what the hell was going on. And it took me about two or three games to actually realize, oh, I just controlled that person and that's how I play it. Okay, right, get that head around my head. So once that's how you play it, then when your other players will get it, you you can tap the fire button and they will pass it to you. And so they'll pass it to oh, you yeah. and then you okay. can then pass it out to them and stuff like that. You can trip them. And I, was, I actually found myself having quite a decent game of ice hockey um, you know, I, against I the computer. I could do it. I just couldn't do it. Yeah, if that's your thing. You, you know, I was tripping players up. I was generally being a bit of a nuisance. I was nicking the puck. I was passing it out. I was running around. I was getting some shots in. And, you know, I, I quite enjoyed myself. I'm not quite sure I knew how to do all the, sh- all the moves. I was trying to just, you know, I was just jabbing away at the fire button and jibbing away and I was you know, get close and shoot and things like that. So yeah, it was okay. If you had the instructions and you knew what you were supposed to be doing, then I imagine it's a lot better. You know, there's a decent set of options to play at different levels. There's a two-player mode. It's a shame it's just USSR versus USA and not a sort of wider, you know, like we've seen in the other games where there's like a league or a cup or something to go at. It reminded me of sort of a more of an accolade type affair where, we, you know, you get like that fast break where it's just one team against the other and it's just one game and it's like, here you go, here's a game of ice hockey, play it. Like, okay, well, that's fine. And so, you know, that's maybe all you want. I'd probably think, like you, you'd need to dig ice hockey to get much out of this. I think you need to be an ice hockey fan. But as a C64 version of that sport, I thought this was perfectly acceptable. I think it should have been higher than 50%. Music was a bit ropey, though, as you've noted. I I put that down as well. I thought music was terrible. But for a game of ice hockey, I thought it played pretty smoothly, pretty well. There was a lot going on. A lot of sprites, no flickering. Good, you know, so it was fine. Um, Just like you could really just done with the instructions but i did manage to muddle my way through to having a, a vaguely decent game of ice hockey against the junior level i didn't try the higher levels 
because I imagine I just no. got pasted. No. And it's quite pricey for a two-team game, isn't it? 15 quid, yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's not like it's got a license on it, has it? It's just power play hockey. No, but I was thinking there's no more ten, no more than two teams. So, you know, how much variation of play? You've got three difficulty levels and two teams. It's not, yeah. There's not a massive array of options there. No, there isn't. And so maybe that's why it got knocked down to 50%. So maybe that was taken into consideration. But I don't know. Was that disc only? I don't know. It probably is from EA, maybe. But yeah, it's, it's a good game of hockey. Just overpriced for what it is. There you go. Ice hockey, sorry. Here we go. That's power play hockey. It's all right. Let's move on to our next one. Maybe that is as well. And our next one, uh, well, this is a budget title. This is £2.99. This is Superhero. Superhero. Two words, Superhero. Now, mm. supposedly, Graham, the gods are bored. Bored with the whole end we of being immortal. Oh, how the day seems to stretch forever. Oh, with nothing so to break dull. the monotony. So dull. It's so, so boring. excessively dull being immortal, you know. It's so, it's just piffling dullness of uh, I've killed myself 15 times this week it's so boring (laughs) I just want something to do so in the hope of something exciting happening they devise complex complex puzzles for each other to solve Mm. and this time it is you you Graham who must solve the labyrinth for the highest of stakes because if you lose and you don't don't solve the labyrinth you shall have your immortality and powers stripped away from you now that's something you might actually want if you're so bored (laughs) yeah Anyway, yeah, but luckily for you, though, Venus, the goddess of love, has hidden some useful objects in some of the rooms for you to find and make your task achievable. Kind of handy. Okay. So anyway, this comes from the home of everything simulator, Codemasters, and it's converted from the Spectrum and the Amstrad original by Martin Ellis. He did Phantom of the Asteroid. Um, Okay. And it's got music by Steve Barrett. Oh, good old Steve Barrett. Good old Steve Barrett. We've not seen one of these for a while, and what we have here is an isometric flick screen adventure a genre that the c64 with its fat pixels always does so well at <laughs> did you just fat shame the pixels the Commodore 64? <laughs> it does have fat pixels yeah that's just what it is but yes <laughs> we have another one for better or for worse so in the game loads it presents you with a rather amstrad-esque title screen sort just of double, double height text and sort of split color i'm like that looks mm. like an amstrad title screen what's going on here and there's a bit of music that's over before you blink and doesn't loop. We've seen that before in another game recently. Loop the music. Yeah, loop the bloody music, non-loopers. You know, JSR back to the beginning or whatever it is. Yeah, was it Thunderblade, I think, was it, that did that? Uh, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was. So there's nothing much to do here but press fire. And you're into the wide and squashed world of superhero. <laughs> is the best way I can describe this. And when I say wide and squashed, that's exactly what I mean. There's been no attempt to mitigate the nature of the C64 pixels, and this has some disastrous consequences for this game, which I will come to later. So yes, what we have here is a typical flick screen, gaudy coloured, medium res, flick screen, I'll keep saying that, isometric adventure. Your first task, um, as it starts, is to find various objects to help you. These are the boots to let you jump, the Warhammer to attack enemies, the trans-dimensional bag, which allows you to carry lots of stuff, think Sport <laughs> Billy, um, and the, the mystical yeah, and the mystical helmet, which will make the god shower <laughs> gifts upon you. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know. Sorry, just, just unleash my inner titty ye not. <laughs> what, the mystical helmet? Good <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Then you'll need to collect keys, winged shoes, a paralyzer, gold, 
and ESP activators for the ESP orbs, which will guide you towards the next guardian spirit or something. I have no idea what is going on what? at this point. There are also traders, energy spheres, and guardians, and loads of objects that just kill you upon contact and cost you one of your five lives. I don't know. This is flick. There's you know, is an isometric adventure happening, and you're wandering around it, and there are stuff to find. Whatever. So with all that in mind, what you'll find yourself doing here is wandering from room to room, constantly battling the perspective of this game because it's it is simply off the charts. The perspective of this is just crazy. There's one room <laughs> right near the beginning. I think it's actually the second room. So if you walk out the first room, you go down the bottom right. You went isometric, go out the bottom right, exit. And I thought that there was another exit on the opposite side to, to which you enter. And I was like, okay, I'm going to need to move up and across to get to it. But no. I just walked down and right, just so pulled to the right and walked down to the right and was magically in line with it. I was like, this is, that's not, I don't know what's happened. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's like Ross Kemp folded. That's what this, that's what this, this game reminded me of. I was like, there's something gone horribly wrong here. Everything is so squashed. It's impossible to judge anything with any sense of reliability. And, and 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 as if that's not bad enough. So so trying to navigate once you get the boots and you can jump, trying to navigate a jump when you're thinking, oh, I should be able to jump there, sort of thing. And you you move about four pixels to the left and what up? It's all over the place. Don't know. It's just terrible. The rooms don't also the rooms as well because it's so wide. They don't fit on the screen. <laughs> so you've got big chunks of the screen and the top left. Sorry, on the left and right just off screen you can walk off screen but that's not great um i checked yeah. the Amstrad version out because i thought you know we'll have a look and see where this came from and not only does that version scroll from room to room as well whereas this one flicks it also lets you see your character when you walk into the left or right corner of the room not so the c64 version which allows you to wander off screen and usually die as they put objects that kill you there so you've got objects off screen that kill you there or in some other rooms you've got to walk around the edge of the room because the floor itself will kill you in the middle but you can't see when you've reached the end of the <laughs> thing and if you walk into the wall you die because there's probably something that'll kill you and if you try to turn to walk up the what you think, think you won't you won't have reached it because you'll be in the carpet <laughs> and you'll die it's it's so stupid yeah I'd, i've never known anything like it i'll give it the fact that it, it was it was fairly fast for one of these type of games it, for, i've seen a lot slower but it, so it was, it was okay it was it wasn't too slow but it's also ugly horrible yep. color scheme and the uh, it's horrible yep. it's like it's all pink and, and white in the first few scenes and your character you're main character if you're a god i don't know what god you are but you have been severely hit over the head with a hammer the hot because you've been squished you are squashed you are wide i don't know just this is just awful the lack of being able to see yourself when you need to the pain in trying to work out where objects are and release into each other because of the angles and perspective uh, i wondered what i walked there no, i turned this off pretty quickly i gave it quite a few goes the annoying tune that plays every time you die oh god that oh just perspectively challenging <laughs> perspectively challenged superheroes are never something anyone ever wants. It's yeah. not something anyone has ever asked for. This is confusing muddle of a thing where they've tried to squish everything in and gone, well, actually, we need to rearrange these rooms a bit for the C64 because it's the pixels don't match the Amstrad original mm. or we need to draw it differently. No, they haven't. They've just done it exactly the same. It's that many squares wide on the Amstrad version. It will be that many squares wide here. Oh, it doesn't fit. Doesn't matter. They don't need to see themselves off screen. Doesn't matter. Yeah, we do. Terrible. Didn't like it at all. Got 43%. Should have been lower. Because you can't play it. What about you? Did you enjoy your time as a superhero? No, I did not. This daft, stupid thing. <laughs> right, so this is like, this is isometric medium res in all its glory, right? Yeah, yeah. It? So what that means for the C64 is that this is 160 by 200 pixels. Because the standard yeah. C64 display is obviously 320 by 200. Mm -hmm. But because they're doing it in medium res, that halves the resolution, which is why they're so bloody flat. Now, yeah. and, and that comes with problems. What that means is that your designed levels, which were square pixels, 
aren't going to fit on the screen. Nope. No, they do not. Just, you know, it's just, it, and they don't. They're not going to fit. It won't fit. It's not going to fit. <laughs> it's, it it's not going to fit. You stupid, stupid idiots. It's not going to fit. <laughs> so, yes, you get a flatter angle, which they've probably sat there going, doesn't matter. It's just a bit flatter. Nobody will mind. It's a bit runs a bit quicker. And then someone didn't go, but you won't see the, all the levels because they're squashed and wider out there, which you know, we haven't got the. Nobody said that. Stupid, stupid, stupid things that people do. So your play looks like it's been under a hydraulic press and so does everything else. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's the style you went for. But your levels don't fit on the screen either. Problem, big problem. Aside from that, a god-awful colour scheme of red and white and, and that attempt to create detail, but it's just lost in the medium res murkiness, isn't it? Yeah. So all of that attempt, little fine details that were nice and detailed on square pixels become horrible and blocky and blodgy in wide vision. <laughs> Nothing looks nice like that. You can't do fine detailed drawing. And if you don't believe me, try and draw a really delicate picture and get a fine liner pen. Oh, the fine lines. Now try and do the same with a bloody great thick marker pen. It's not the same, is it? Not the same, anyway. And those weird corner dead spots, that was the icing on the cake for me. I found one of them pretty quickly, as you would when you was trying to get off a level. I thought there was a door there, because there's just a bloody gap at the corner where the level didn't fit on the screen. <laughs> stupid, stupid game. And that jingle when you lose a life, that's going to haunt me for a while. <laughs> Now I'm gonna I'm gonna put that jingle in randomly around this review just to torture everybody with it because I feel like you know we just, I know we play these games so you don't have to. But we're not sharing that bloody jingle alone. We can all <laughs> share in the pain of that. <laughs> this is just a I don't want to I don't want to wander around a squashed red nightmare doing stuff. I don't want to do that especially in something that's so isometrically challenged that it's stupid. Just be gone from this world, this stupid piece of rubbish. You're not a superhero, you're nothing. No, and let's not talk about the cover, which seems to have a scantily clad Toya and Sting oh. on it. <laughs> cover! L- looking, looking, as, giving the, looking askance at a dragon in the background, which has no bearing on this on the, the bearded dwarf you seem to play in this. <laughs> exactly. I don't know what happened or how this got involved and how this got made, really. I guess, like you said... Someone, some genius from the spectrum, yet again went, oh, we'll whack a version out on the C64. Oh, it doesn't run very quickly in high res, does it? Look at all those other games. Oh, let's pop it in medium res. No one will know. We knew. <laughs> you stupid idiot. We knew. We so don't ever it. do that again. Going back in time, you're getting erased. End of line. <laughs> End of line. There we go. That's superhero. 43 too high, even for 299. Never. I'll tell you what, six, 160 by 200 is nothing. Is not a good resolution for most things. Not for backgrounds anyway, not for games. It's just not good. It's not. It's not good. <laughs> there we go. Oh, we've got another super coming up. Let's see if it is super. And that super is Superman, the Man of Steel. There we go. Wow. Yeah. Da, 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 da. Superman. Yeah, this was uh, 9.95, but only got 39%. Hmm. Something tells mm. me this is more Superman 3 than Superman <laughs> 2. <laughs> or Superman 4, even. Yeah. yeah. This is published by Tynesoft, Fog on the Tynesoft. Interesting that they did it. Copyright first star software. So I'm guessing there's some weird lineage to this that I didn't dig into. The coder here was uh, Ian Davison. He did the Summer and Winter Olympiad, which is nice. And Andrew Ridgwick, which I think he's only responsible for this one. Graphics are by Kevin Preston and Michael J. Landreth doing the Landreth walk. Oi, I think we've done that joke before. 
And the musician here was, um, yeah. <laughs> was w- Wally Bevan. God, Wally. Wall. It's Wall. Council Wally. It's Wally Bevan. It's the Bevan man. It's Bebby. Oh, Bebby did it. Walter um, Bevan. Wally Bevan did it. Yeah. God of Walter. So, <laughs> it's this. so this is the comic-based superhero tale involving <sighs> the Man of Steel himself, Superman. Um, so on this, you're going to um, go through a series of micro mini games on the little bit of an adventure based around Superman, obviously. Now, you'll start this game with a sort of a selection screen, a little bit, where you choose your skill level. Now, I'll say right from the get-go, by the way, that the the game itself here, it does look quite nice. So the interstitial graphics, those kind of parts, those kind of bits, they don't look too bad at all, actually. Mm -hmm. They do kind of work, look quite nice, all that kind of thing. So you start the game, you get a sort of a nice title screen. Graphics are quite good. Very slow loading this though. So once you've chosen your skill level, expect long load times here because mm. there's some, you know, considering this is Superman, this ain't super fast. This is like Superman, just you know, stretching in the morning, having a yawn. Oh, I've got things to do today, but I'm so tired. So anyway, you go to a comic panel type view and where you're given a little bit of a preamble and then the first mission for Superman will start. Now, there's a set series of missions that you're going to partake in and these are actually all thoroughly explained in the instructions that come with it, the manual. Now, I'm not going to go through and read out the entire, we'll, you know, we'll put a, sh- a link in the show notes, but essentially each part of the process, each game is a slightly different take on something. And you've got something to do. And I'll just give a sort of a TLDR of the things you need to do just to sort of save a little bit of time because otherwise we're going to be here for a week because um, mm-hmm. it's quite a lot of game. So at the start, you've got somebody called Professor Corwin and he needs Superman um, because he's at the Star Laboratories um, or he's, and there's, something's happening there and he needs to get there fairly quickly. So you've got to uh, fly urgently from Metropolis to the Star Laboratories. And on the way, you're going to encounter some of these evil, what they're called parademons, which come out of boom tubes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because there's you know stuff happening and mm-hmm. it, weirdly at that moment i noticed in the comic panel it says um he says superman we need you even though he's speaking to clark kent which is weird and then and then clark kent goes to a separate panel and goes this sounds like a job for superman i'm thinking of course it does because he asked for you by name you stupid <laughs> fool it's not like this sounds like a job for batman this isn't no this is no superman job um, i'll get i'll get all the batman for you because you know it sounds more like his thing it's not really my thing and um, anyway but the, in all fairness the way the comic panels work they illuminate you press space bar there's a sort of scrolly message with the text it reads the text out you can't really read it in the panel which is a bit weird but you can't it sort of scrolls the text across and then you press space and it moves from panel to panel i quite like the way it did that in all fairness it's a long yeah. load but mm-hmm. i quite like the way it did that and it does that for each individual part so when you f- finish a level more comic reveals more stuff next game that kind of thing. In every essence, this is a multi-event game with Superman involved, isn't it, really? Until Tynesoft had something to do with it. So your initial initial level then is you've got to fly to the Star Labs to meet Professor Corwin. Now, the first game you're going to play is a... And that, all these games are quite competently coded, I have to say. So you've got a rear view of Superman. So Superman sort of flying up into the screen, if you like. You're flying towards the Star Labs. On the left-hand side, you've got like a UI, which details your score time remaining for the level each each level is on a countdown the amount of bonus you're going to get for sort of the things you do and the amount of demons you've killed and then you've got this mysterious panel of superpowers now enjoying each level certain superpowers are available to you now i don't get why superman switches them off for certain levels because <laughs> i figured he didn't know he did that it's just maybe that's just a you know maybe that's just, i didn't know that about superman you can't know everything about certain these super people you know um, and he also has an energy level at the bottom and then obviously the Superman logo. So that's all like on a strip on the left-hand side. Okay, it's quite nicely done. And then the right-hand side, there's the game window. Now in this part, like I said, you've got like a checkerboard effect zooming towards you. Your Superman flying towards the Star Labs. 
and there's clouds in the sky. It's actually quite nice graphics on this. I have to say the scrolling of the checkerboard effect is really smooth and it plays and you control Superman with a joystick flying about and then enemies, these um, parademons that are born from the boom tubes, as it were. So somebody called Dark Seed has, you know, equipped some of them with concussion cannons. All right, whatever. But um, you'll end up, um, you've got two choices at this point. You can have, you've got um, heat vision, I think, is your only thing you can use at this point. Yeah. And obviously you've got flight. So at this point, you're flying towards the screen. These enemies come and you'll press fire button and then your laser vision will shoot out and you'll shoot them and they'll die eventually. And that takes up energy. But if you don't use it, it replenishes itself. And then you'll fly through that and you'll get through to the next bit because eventually your time will click down. You'll have shot enough demons, whatever. You'll, you'll do it because you're Superman, right? So when you do that, you'll get, you'll get to the next sort of comic panel and then you'll get there and um, you'll get there and you've got like a, a little little panel that details that you've got to protect a Star Lab professors on board a shuttle all of a sudden in space for reasons. And you've got to, you're, you've got to protect this shuttle satellite thing from all the various attacking meteors and enemies that fly towards it. So in this version, you've still got the panel on the left same displays, essentially, a little bit more colourful now with the Superman logo. But and the, sh- the ship that you're protecting now has an energy meter, and so does the professor who's inside this particular vehicle. And the idea here is that the um, – I think it's a shuttle, isn't it? Like a space shuttle yeah, at the yeah. bottom. Mm-hmm. So a space shuttle sort of flies upwards um, from the bottom of the screen and sort of – and it's got, quite again, quite nice graphics and a quite nice star effect as you move left and right at Superman. Superman, you're looking at from the top down. And this time, rocks and things are flying towards them, and you've got to either zap them out of the way or punch them out of the way, because now you can use your super punch at this point. And you've got to try and sort of punch these things to stop them hitting the shuttle, because otherwise they'll damage the ship and also potentially kill the professor. And you've got to do about, I think, about two and a half minutes in all of these levels to do this, two and a half, three minutes. So, and that's how this game plays out. So this variation of it plays out. It's top down. Again, the way it scrolls left and right, and the way the stars sort of move in sort of parallax type effect. It looks quite nice and it plays quite nice. You'll go, you'll whisk through it, no problem. And then you'll get to the next bit. Um, the next bit, you've now inside of, um, you get told that you've got to go inside of a sort of a, a special base, I guess it, this is what you call it. Mm. And inside the base, you've got what they call, the, it's called in the game, they call it the combat robot defense game. Each one of these on the is this sort of revealed to you on the panel. Now, what you get here is a side-scrolling kind of game um, where you play Superman from the side view this time. You can run and sort of fly at the same time, but he doesn't fly, fly. He sort of stands and flies. That, well, I don't know what you call that particular thing. But anyway, and you can, I think you can sideways fly as well, but either way. So it's a left to right scrolling shoot them up really at this point. Um, and all these various enemies. And this it gets this is where the game actually becomes frighteningly annoying because even though you can shoot and get rid of these and knock them backwards, they can also fire like a concussion weapon at you, which just sends you backwards. So you'll spend most of the game time in this game going backwards instead of forwards. Now you press spacebar to choose between you you've got a super blow or super they call it super breath in this. So some of the robots you can punch, some of them you can blow on. You know, those aren't the most exciting of Supermans. You should just punch them out. Just punch them. You've got super punch. It's blowing on things. It's just a bit naff, isn't it? But anyway, mm-hmm. so you're, you're inside this thing. I think you're inside the satellite. I'm not sure. But anyway, you're inside this thing and you're running from left to right and you've got to basically get to the end by punching and stuff like that. And again, you've got energy. Your energy's never going to run out because you can just stand till it replenishes. You've got a distance that you've got to cover in a certain time and you'll get bonus and you'll get through that fairly easily too. And you'll move on to that. From that, you'll go on to... I think there's another satellite defense game after that, which is very similar to the way you played the shuttle one, only you're protecting a satellite. Yeah. Um, which mm-hmm. plays out principally exactly the same. And oh, by the way, in the previous combat robot defense game, your UI shifts to the top. It's the same stuff. It's just at the top. Mm-hmm. So then you'll go back to another protect the satellite game, which is where you're obviously flying from the top-down view, same sort of deal, a little bit harder, but the same sort of thing. Then after that, there's a space station battle part of the game. 
Now, I have to say, the graphics on the space station are actually pretty damn good at this point. Mm -hmm. I thought they were really good. And you're sort of seen from behind, flying towards the, flying towards the space station, and you just got to shoot all the various things that come towards you. You've got like a, fair, a fair array of super weapons, such as they are at your disposal. But the graphics on this bit are actually genuinely nicely done. A really nicely shaded sort of spaceship will, and it's quite large. And if it doesn't animate or do a lot, but it does look the part. And the way you can trust Superman and the way the stars work around it, it's actually quite, it's quite nice the way it's done. So not all play, fair play. And you think that might be the end of the game, but you'd be wrong. Because then there's the final battle. And the final battle is a sort of repeat of the robot attack. Only this time you're running along a sort of differently designed lab type environment with, again, <laughs> flying sideways a little bit with various different things attacking you. It plays out exactly like the combat robot defense game, only it's the final battle defense game, I guess. Um, and you're sort of running along. And the scrolling in these sections is good as well. It's not glitchy or anything like that. It scrolls quite smoothly. They're, they play out as nice individual games. So bear in mind, there's a long load for the comic panel and the game between each of these. Um, and when you get to the end of that, you get like a, a control panel thing, which you can blow up. And then that is the officially the end of the game. You then get your final scores, a picture of Superman, a couple of nice graphics, one where he's flying towards the screen, very dynamic looking. One where you sort of sat on a chair when you get your final score, and that's it. Congratulations, you've finished the game. So it plays out as it's a, it's hard to de describe this game. It is really like a multi-event Superman game where each each instead of the events of a, like an Olympiad or, a, or it's like the Superman just doing stuff in different ways. Now that kind of works in the context of Superman. It just I think the problem here is Superman's not fighting anything in particularly interesting. I suppose we'll come to that. So graphically and thematically. There is a good game here, you know, there's long load times and all of that, but it has some really nicely detailed sprites and backgrounds and the scrolling and scrolling effects in all the levels are actually really good. Those parts, fine. The mixture of viewpoints works nicely. So you get like a 3D zoomer, top down, side scrolling, and these all actually individually play pretty well. The controls are simple. You move it with the joystick and shoot, space to change power, all of that. And the audio works such as it is, although the weird version of the opening theme is kind of a bit discordant, I, thought, I felt, but it, it sort of works what it is. All of that feels like a good comic book game. It sort of does. However, problem is, you are the problem. You're Superman, which means technically you're invincible. And is there ever a game that really makes you feel that way? It's this one. Because you can't die. Or at least not easily. I mean, you can be slowed down and you can be pushed aside. And you no, know, but you unless you run out of time or the professor dies in, in one of the levels where you're meant to be looking after them, you mm -hmm. as Superman cannot die. Mm -hmm. And which means the levels play out in some instances really, really easily. In fact, it's so easy this game. I finished it on all of the difficulty levels, all of I finished the whole game multiple times and on every difficulty level without really trying two of the levels on this. I didn't even move the joystick. I just stayed in the middle. Because he's Superman. So if anything hits him, you know, your energy isn't gonna run down. And it regenerates quicker than it runs down. And so you can just protect the satellite and the shuttle by just being in front of it. How crazy is that? So you're never really challenged. I think you're just more annoyed, really, in this. Those robot <laughs> levels will annoy you. you know? And Superman, you know, when he gets annoyed, he just, you, just, you know, you, just, you can't just blow the robots away. You've got to do punch them and blow them, smash them up and do super smashy stuff. So during the combat defense game and the final battle, the way the robots just push you back, it just gets plain old annoying. Now, the other, other levels here don't challenge you at all, like I've said. And you, just, you can just float through them with periodic zapping, maybe, if you get bored but or punching or, or doing stuff. But in all, all in all, this game is far too easy. And it's, it mm. is all tied together with a nice comic book idea. But it's the most boring Superman comic of all bloody time. Just Superman just, he's not doing anything that challenges him. There's no super villain. There's no General Zod. There's no Phantom Zone. There's no Kryptonite. There's, no, there's nothing. This is just a walk in the park, Superman. Superman protects satellites. You know, that's his, he does that in his sleep. There's no challenge here for it. You could just pick up 
that satellite and throw it to where it needed to be. You don't have to sort of fly along protecting it, does he? No. It's just, it's you know, he could just continuously blow. He's got super lungs, so he never runs out of air. He don't breathe air. So he just blow, he could just continuously blow super breath and get everything out of the way of that shuttle permanently. You don't have to do any of that. So you need to offer something up in these things that is, and this, this is such a rich material basis. And maybe there's some copyright issues, I don't know. But there's such rich material basis for all of the super you know, Superman architecture, the Superman license, the Superman villainy that's out there. There's so much of that stuff. I find it almost inconceivable that you would pick Superman needs to fly to a lab to protect a professor and punch some robots. All the things (laughs) Superman could fight and Superman could battle. You know, this is a guy that sleeps, you know, in a base in the middle of the bloody Arctic, is it? Or the Antarctic. He sleeps in his fortress of solitude and periodically recharges himself by laying on the sun. You ain't going to phase him by throwing (laughs) robots at him. I'm just saying, you ain't going to do that. So this game is all of the Superman thematics, but none of the Superman chicanery, is it? It's, it no. do, it's doing the visuals, but it's not It's not got the idea of Superman game and what it would be to fly as Superman and do stuff that challenges him. And I think there's such a missed opportunity because they clearly had the graphic and oral and visual talent to do something like this. And the wherewithal to think about putting it across multiple levels and make them load in, albeit slowly, but just thinking, it. let's not try and cram it all into one load. Let's, let's spread this out and... You know, mix it up a bit. They're all good ideas, but you've got to put something in there that makes it a Superman game, not just a Superman can do stuff. I mean, you may as well have had a, an entire level where Superman fries an egg or makes an omelette or something. It would have been far more entertaining watching him do that than just doing stuff that Superman can do really easy anyway. So it needed a proper villain for me, like a threat that Superman would find challenging that you would think, oh my God, Superman is the only person who can take this on, and maybe even not Superman. That would have been a good Superman game, what we have here, this day in the life of a superhero type thing doesn't work for me it's not very exciting and the game is ultimately too easy because of it so there you go what did you think it's pretty much exactly the same i mean there's certainly some thoughts been put into the presentation of this i thought impressions are very good when you start off so i thought the, the superman theme by wally Bevan was pretty solid rendition for this i thought it was pretty good there's a great title screen nice comic interstitials set up the games you'll play the wraparound everything wrap the wraparound of, yeah, of yeah. you know is all great you know <laughs> everything's really cool i was like hey wow this is really impressive Thirty-nine percent. You're thinking, what's there must be what's gone wrong? Mm. But then you get to the games themselves, and they're they're really basic. I mean, it's just, it's like a it's a space area for toddlers. It's the first one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it yeah. essentially what it is. It's like it's a very nice, and I mean, and that that three D sort of checkerboard effect is is straight out of um, Cosmic Causeway, or yeah, you yeah. Know, things like that. So, it's, but it's a good. It, all the graphics are really nice. Everything looks great. Everything you know, it's smooth. It's nice. Everything's good. But it's really dull. No amount of nice visuals can alter the fact that this is really dull and simplistic from the gameplay perspective. Shooting simple demons, you fly through space twice. You go down a corridor twice, and you shoot a space. You shoot a space station or something, and that's it. You know, yeah. it's very trivial and boring. The lack of challenge completely misses the point of how you put peril into Superman stories. As we saw, you know, you mentioned General Zod, things like that. You know, don't, don't, the people, it's the people. It's this, you know, if you, you, yep. you know, it's Superman one, he's got a choice to make, hasn't he? Which, you know, which missile does he go after to save, you know, you can't yeah. save both. You know, he has to sort of alter time and things like that. And he has to do that. And so there's a choice. He's got, to, that's how you put the danger into Superman because he, he's Superman. Yes. He can't be hurt, but he can lose people and things like that. And yeah. that's because he's, you know, that's, that's the threat that comes from him. Or, you know, or you lob kryptonite at him. Yep. <laughs> and you, you know, enough kryptonite gets on Superman. He will die. Yeah. That's the whole point. Um, but it doesn't do any of that. So I don't know. I don't know what they were doing with this. It's like they had all the wraparound. They went, we've got these. So either there was some 
maybe you know dc or whoever this was licensed from said you can't you can't kill him okay yeah. well then we need to put you know lois lane jimmy olsen we need to put them in peril and he's got to save them and if he doesn't you know what it is shame though looks lovely sounds great just lacks anything compelling <laughs> once you well, even before you've gone through it once so yeah i think about 39 percent is about right because the, the the game here is 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 woefully lacking is a bit of a shame. Superman, the Man of Steel. This isn't the first Superman game on the C64, by the way. There was one that was never reviewed by Zap, by Beyond, Beyond Software, called Superman the Game. Maybe we'll look okay. at it at some point. Well, I was, look, just, I was looking then at, at where First Star come into this, because obviously First Star Software have got, you know, they've done other stuff on the C64 as well. Well, First Star did the first game. Yeah, they did the 1985 one. But if you notice, yeah. there's similarities to the tonality and the, and the language of that game. So there's a character called Dark Seed in it. But in that game, the object is to save the citizens of Metropolis, yeah. which makes sense for a Superman game because that's what Superman would do. Hmm. But I don't know. I didn't get that from this latest version. Yeah, I mean, Darkseid's is the big thing. He's, he's the thing that turns up at the end of uh, Batman versus... No, Darkseid's the... Is he in the Justice League film? He's, he's, a, he's just a bad guy in the Superman story. I haven't watched big... any of those recent ones because I can't stand it. But anyway, yeah, Darkseid, you know, he's a character, but he just needs more than this. But, you know, such a shame, really, because, like like I said, the, it is a multi... I mean, the people who made this worked on things like Summer Summer Olympiad and things like that, Winter Olympiad, something called European Games. And I just found out as well that coming in 1990, we've got a Belly Hills Cop game. Oh, gosh. Wow. Okay. I've never even heard of that, but... No, Coming from the same people who did this. Okay. Well, the, again, the graphically, they might do well. And they, they did do Boulder Dash first star, didn't they? So. Yeah, they did, yeah. Superman, Man of Steel, Game of Dull. Let's move on. We've still got one game left, and then we're done for the week. So let's move on to that. From one Man of Steel to another. Jockey Wilson's darts challenge. <laughs> yeah, I suppose he's, so, yeah. He's another superhero. He's Hawkeye. Um, he's a man of steel darts, yeah. <laughs> man of steel darts. From Zeppelin Games comes Jockey Wilson's darts challenge. A game I'm not sure anyone ever, anywhere asked for. Nope. <laughs> but Jockey Wilson, you know. If you don't know who Jockey Wilson was, and some of you may not, he was a Scottish professional darts player from 1979 into the 90s. He was a regular on TV that I was usually forced to watch alongside other big-name darts players like Eric Bristow, John Lowe, and Cliff Lazaranko, so if you remember them. Remember and also them. featured on Bullseye quite a lot. Jockey did. Yeah. Uh, he won the World Professional Darts Championship twice in 1982 and 1989 and also won the British Professional Championship a record four times between 1981 and 1989. Very so, good darts player. Yeah, so maybe some people did want a darts game based on Jockey Wilson. What do I know? Obviously someone did because he's got one. Whether they did or they did not, we have one, and here it is. This was coded by Kevin Franklin, graphics by Michael Owens, and music by Adam Gilmore. We've seen them before. It's the team behind other budget hits, such as that Ball Blaster, Draconis, and Zybex. Okay. Okay. So this does mean some good production values are to be expected. And there, there's a decent title screen uh, to this, which sees Jockey slim down a bit. It was yeah. A- he yeah, was, slimmed down a bit on he that. Was a, yeah. He was a big old guy, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Um, and once the game loads, you've got a decent tune from Mr. Gilmore and an icon-driven, well-shaded menu system. It's like, um, mm, you know, it quite is. cool looking. Uh, and we've got three types of games to choose from here. We've got head-to-head, which is your two-player game. We've got tournament, or we've got round-the-clock. Like I said, head-to-head is your two-player mode where you can play the first, uh, first uh, to up to four sets. You can do one set or up to four sets. The way you pick this is quite confusing because there's three icons. There's like an S to start, and there's another icon which changes depending on the type of game you've chosen. 
you've got like these icons around the sort of menu screen, sort of the head to heads, like two heads facing each other, but they are one. Um, then you've got the tournament mode, and then you've got the round the clock, which is a clock. And depending on which one you've highlighted, you select the the second option sort of changes so it might go from the number of players to the number of sets or how how the difficulty works so you've got to be kind of careful sort of thing which one you pick it's a bit confusing at first so yeah tournament motives up to four players take part in a knockout tournament and round the clock as you try and hit the numbers one to 20 in order in the fastest time possible once you've chosen your mode, you get a quick bit of preamble. In tournament mode, you can enter each player's name because you can have up to four players in the tournament mode. And then the main game of darts commences. So the way this is presented is you you kind of you've got a, basically there's a dartboard in front of you. So you've got a big round dartboard. You look at like as if you're looking at it head on. And your dart starts off kind of floating around in the center of the board and it's sort of floating about. If you push the joystick in any direction, it makes the, the, the dart starts moving in a sort of circular motion in the direction that you've pushed and it sort of goes off and then you've got to try and control this floaty arrow to get it where you want it to go. So you push up and it floats up and you pull it down, it floats down in a kind of circular motion and you, yeah, as it's moving around, you got to throw it. It's a bit floaty. <laughs> it's a bit hard to control. And as it moves around, pressing fire releases the dart you know, other other way you've sort of pressed the fire and it arcs in and you get that, you know, you get the score, whatever you've hit. Um, and you repeat this for your three darts. Once this is done, you get your score um, and that's it really. In two-player mode, play then passes to the next player. If you're playing in tournament mode and you're playing one of the computer-controlled players, we then get an, sort of an overhead shot of your opponent at the Oki throwing their darts and they sort of arc in. Um, I quite like this because where they hit the board, um, is the score they get so you can kind of kind of tell where they're sort of aiming the scores the ui for uh the game is that it's got the scores they're on the right of the screen so it'll start at 501 and it counts down so if you get 60 it'll go down to 441 and until you get all the way down to zero you haven't done a double it's basic darts rules there's not much to describe here it's just darts and the screen shows the dartboard and you throw darts at it in round the clock mode the ui shows the number to hit and the timer and they're on the right and you can also choose to make it when you're choosing your options for the round the clock mode the little option so it's the second kind of option button that you can hit allows you to choose you can hit any part of the number so any so you hit one you can hit the treble or the double or the main chunk you can have it to just hit the single parts you can have it to just hit the double parts or you can have it to just hit the trebles you know if you want a real challenge to go around the board and i don't know that's about it what is to say about this as budget darts game go is it as good as 180 which we played ages back i don't think it is because the control method's not as good. It's too floaty, and it's far too yeah. tricky to aim properly. And what that leads to is games taking ages as you fight to control the dart as it meanders around. You're trying to get it in. And so what should be, you know, darts is a, it's quick and snappy. You throw darts like, doosh, doosh, doosh. you throw them really fast, and you're done, and you're out. You know, dart throwing should take a few seconds. You go pick them up, and you take them out. This it's not. It takes ages because you're trying to aim this damn thing. So each throw takes a good, you know, 10, 15 seconds, I was finding, trying to get it where you want it to be. So multiple games within multiple sets, they just take forever. It just, just goes on and on. And so you never really feel in control because of that method. It just takes too long. It drags out and it gets just gets a bit boring. The presentation's all there. The modes are interesting. You no know, head-to-head tournament round the, round the clock. All fine. All what you'd want from a darts game. And the inclusion of a single-player tournament, again, you just put one player in, it's good touch, so you can just play through a tournament. I like that all that's there, but it just feels like you're fighting the control all the time. And you, I never felt, and I played this quite a bit, that I was ever getting any better at the game, no matter how much I played it. It was just always arbitrary where the sort of hand would float off to or the dart would go, and I never really felt like it was going to go where I wanted it to be. Also, as well, I found the lack of a restart button a pain <laughs> because because it takes so long. You can't even know what to expect. I wanted to go back to try the other different modes. You can't get back. You've got to go through the whole game or turn it off and reload. 
which is annoying because there's no way of getting back to the title screen. It's an okay game. It's an okay darts game. It looks the part. It got 73%. Yeah, it's just too slow and too dull and too boring. It's, I mean, the, there's not really any physics because you just throw the thing and it goes where you press the fire button. And it's okay, but it's just it's too slow and too dull for my liking. If you if you wanted a darts game on the C64, go play 180 because um, I think it's the better game. It's faster and it's more, it's more just better to play. I found. What about you? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit wobbly-handed for me, this, really. Um, I was just looking. It's quite a sad tale, actually, Jockey Wilson's. It is, yes. It is. I didn't really want to get into too much about it, but yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's just, it's quite sad. I mean, it's he's such a talented player. It's just a tragedy, really. He, he, you know, he, he died. Rest in peace, Jockey. He died in 2012. He did, yeah. But for the game, then, because this is the first, I think this is the first darts game based on an actual darts player, which is quite interesting. I think it might be, yeah, yeah. First one we've come across, So, yeah. But, you know, I just started to get a bit dizzy playing this. I mean, all the options are there, and that beginning bit, like you said, does look part. Not terrible, that. But the weird rotating controls, I found them a bit nauseating. It was like... Yeah, yeah. This doesn't mean the game's terrible. It's passable, and you can play darts with it. But is it better than 180 was the key question for me. No, Mm. is the simple answer to that. Mm. Like you said, you've got game variations. Things are lively, I suppose. The display is quite large. The scoreboard, nice and clear. But I just don't see there being any way you can get proper applied accuracy. It can never be a thing in this game. So it's just really down to more chance than getting better at the accuracy thing because it just kind of is a bit random the way it sort of rotates and moves around the, the, the board. Mm. So it's floaty. I wrote down floaty as well. So we've obviously both agreed on that. Yeah. And I don't think rotational chance is a good way of playing darts. I'm pretty sure that Jockey Wilson did not just go to the board and go, wee, wee, like drawing you know, a spiral you know, graph. No, he, he famously was a you know he he was a very consistent darts player, yeah. uh, Jockey Wilson, and so just you know as with all the darts players at that time, troubled in all sorts of ways. But he was you know very consistent. So I don't know that he would have had much to say about this game. Probably more for curiosity than anything else. But it's what it's not a bad darts game. It's not terrible. It's only three quid. But you're going to play 180, aren't you? Which was the cheap same price, if not cheaper, and and probably yeah. better to play. Yes. So. No, they gave it 73%. I think it's a little bit on the generous side, but all right, it's it's a darts game and you can play darts with it and it has a few darts options on it, so all right. But it, it ain't as good as 180. No, it's not. And there we go. That's it for this week. It's our nine games, our albums. A chunky lot of games. We've still got 19 games to get through for March. Ooh. Still got two more chunky episodes coming. What did we look at today? Well, this week we've looked at Zach McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders. We Probably did. the pick of the week. Yeah. Well, it's certainly better than bloody Paceman Pat, that. <laughs> I was going to say Paceman Pat was the other option. Um, <laughs> or maybe Ghost Hunters. <laughs> Either no. of those two. Uh, SDI was probably the other one which is you know it's a decent conversion of a a average game it's an okay game Dragon Ninja again could have been a lot better I think if they'd have just taken the time with it and just not fallen foul of the Kung Fu masterness once they fell into Power Play Hockey again decent that's actually okay decent ice hockey game Uh, Superhero wide wide so wide (laughs) Superman the Man of Steel presentationally good but lacking lacking in game and Jockey Wilson's Dark Challenge again looked the part but floaty floaty bit floaty yeah so not a terrible week not terrible but just two really naff and two naff uh, budget titles in there really um but but an okay week what we got coming up next week well next week caesar's getting to lead storm okay could be okay techno cop doesn't sound so good i know i really hope he's in a disco (laughs) (laughs) but i don't think he is terror fighter right that's t-r-e-e-t-t-e-r-r-a 
fighter. And terror. Oh dear. Yeah. Uh, TKO. Okay. Um, that's a that's a accolade boxing game. Though. Yeah, weird one as I remember it. Yeah. Uh, Steel. I think that's a budget okay. shooter. I think Golf Master. Oh no! Why are they bringing out golf games? <laughs> well, coming up soon, we do have the longest title sixty-four game. I think is Jack Nicholas's eighteen-hole golf course challenge super master thing. It goes on forever. Oh, God, title for that is later down the line. Jetbike Simulator. Who do you think that's Aye. by? <laughs> Three guesses, and I know exactly what it's going to look and play like as well. <laughs> that's actually, I've got down here. That's eight ninety-nine. It can't be. It's got to be wrong. I've got. I've got to check that out. Actually, uh, maybe it can't be. Must be wrong. Uh, Master Blaster, mm. which I'm hoping is, I'm really hoping is based on Mad Max 3, but I reckon it isn't. Um, <laughs> and uh, Tiger Road is our next one. Is Tiger Road an arcade conversion? I believe it is, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's, yes, it is. It doesn't look like well, 70%. It's uh, run along and hit things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there just is an arcade, I think. Yeah. Check out that jet bike simulator one. Hang on. No, it is eight ninety nine. Weird. It is Codemasters. Oh, okay. Going on there. I don't know. It's got eight ninety nine down on Lemon. Mm. I'm looking. Probably because you get you get an extra three levels, but you have to pay for them. <laughs> it's got a lot of credits. It's by the Oliver Twins. Oh, I know okay. what that means, don't you? That's a Spectrum conversion. Yeah. It's a conversion. Yeah. <sighs> oh well. Anyway, by the way, something I did mean to go back to. By the way, yes, gone. Do you know what, when we were talking about? Um, the oh-so-wonderful uh, Ghost Hunters, and I said it reminded me of another game we'd played. Yeah. It was that Bumblebee game that we played. One we've played for the, re- the sort of retro revisit, but it's it was that one. Antics. Antics. Yeah. yeah. Because in Antics, you've got a pollen count, and your pollen count goes down if you go near things, and it's just this odd similarities. Yeah, odd, yeah, similar mechanics. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got to wander around avoiding things in that game as well, and stuff it's similar anyway. yeah it, it reminded me of like a shit dizzy yeah, yeah shizzy shizzy that's just just came to me did um <laughs> yeah weirdly jetbike simulator looks like it's got trent Reznor on the front of it it does but it ain't <laughs> Je- trent Reznor's jetbike simulator <laughs> oh god no <laughs> bike like a hole <laughs> Oh, something like that. Anyway, I'd pay that's it. good money for there to be a Nine Inch Nails version of that game. <laughs> that would be fun. Um, I don't think, I think it's a, it's a pretty long episode, another one this week. Yeah, we've got loads to get through. March is a big month. We've still got 19 games to come. Um, exactly. Have you got anything you wish to add? We chucked all the Patreon stuff at the beginning. I don't think I've got no, much more. No, no, I say let's, let's, I think we're done now. That's it. We're done. I need to, I need to get wash some, wash my eyeballs from some of that horror. So, yeah, same here. Um, all right. Well, on that note, um, we'll let you go. Um, as ever, I have been Adrian Mills. And I have been Graham Raddings, and I am not a bread um, <laughs> version of Mick Hucknall, nor do I have any, and nor will I ever have any. <laughs> um, and this episode has been broadcast from Hucknall on the Rye, um, and we will see you again next week. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Zap to the Past podcast. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into the world of Commodore 64 games, as well as the music, films and TV from around the 1980s, driven, of course, by the issue of Zap 64 magazine published at that time. We will return with a whole new batch of games and stuff to talk about next week. Until then, if you want to listen to or download previous episodes of Zap to the Past, and why wouldn't you, they can all be found on our website at zaptothepast.com, as well as being available on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, Audible, Player FM, and, well, pretty much anywhere where we can upload them. By the way, we do always love to hear from our amazing listeners, so if you'd like to contact us about anything in the podcast or beyond, you can do so by emailing us at zaptothepast at gmail.com. We're also active on Twitter under at Zaptoother, 
as well as Facebook, Instagram, and most social media platforms. Just search for Zap to the Past and you'll find us. Oh, and if you like the podcast and what we're doing, please do like, share, review, rate us. It really helps. Something, apparently. The Zap to the Past podcast is written and produced by Adrian Mills and Graham Raddings and recorded at Flaky Bits 2.0 Studio. All opinions expressed are those of the writers, and while we indeed love Zap64 magazine, the Zap to the Past podcast is not affiliated with it in any way. Stay safe, see you next time, and remember, we play these games so you don't have to.